0: And yeah, it wouldn't make no, me. Danny,
1: wait a minute. There was no wise guys hanging out down there. Nothing like that going on. Yeah, they were I throwing didn't... the ball at me. Yeah. Like, a...
0: get, get this little mother, juice. said, like, you know, it was like fun for them to throw the ball and try to get me and jump to the side.
1: See, that's what I love about True House stories. Who the hell would have ever heard this? We never would have gotten this from any rate, any article, nothing. Yeah, I never, I
0: think I've ever told this ever.
1: So, Danny. wait, let's get Penny. it clear, Danny, you worked as a pin spotter at, <laughs> at the basement of Lady Montcalm. for how long?
0: I can't remember. Probably wasn't too long. I, I, I would guess less than a year, but uh, it was one of my after school kind of jobs, my first jobs. Okay. Is that the only job that you had outside this music thing? No, I tried a couple of other things. <clears throat> By the way, I didn't go to Our Lady of Montcalm. Up the block from there was uh, Annunciation, and me and my brothers went to Catholic school there at Annunciation, and um, which that building is over a hundred years old. Um, yeah, there's Annunciation, Eli Whitney, Our Lady of Montcalm, all within five blocks, and we all lived like within four blocks from that. And um, I worked in a deli around the corner from my house. You know, after school, sweeping uh, was just like a breakfast-lunch place. So after I got to school, cleaned the coffee pot, the grill, nothing significant. Only when I guess I was 16, got the job. It was called the Miami Lounge. It's on Union Avenue, right near McCarran Park. And it's still there. It changes over once in a while to different types of restaurants But the layout is exactly the same. I got to do a video tour of- uh, You got
1: to do that. Yeah, we would love to. (laughs) So now give us the layout of what you're first at the Miami Lounge. I'm guessing you went from the other spot. This is another official job that's going to come into play now.
0: Right. right? Um,
1: What year is this about? 76. So 10 percent's fully all over the radio. Yeah. It's just starting to now cook a little bit. Disco is starting to become the
0: word disco, right? So before it, you know, I think on this on the industry scene, the word disco was happening because of places like the gallery and so on, but it didn't explode until about seventy seven globally, and with the opening of Studio Fifty Four in seventy seven and the Paradise Garage opening in seventy seven. Yeah, for the record.
1: And Ralphie D got a job at Odyssey <laughs> 2001 and yes. being part of the film and all, <laughs> as an extra. <expert, laughs> I didn't yeah, know that. He, yeah, he's he was he was part of an extra. They had him do an extra part.
0: Man, I've seen it forever.
1: And there goes Ralphie D becomes the Saturday night DJ, you know, for the next three years. But anyway, you you're doing your thing in over the Williamsburg
0: area. Yeah, so there was um bands like el coco you know the coco motion mondo disco and let's
1: get it get, it, together, together. Let's get it get it together. everybody
0: used to do the it was called the walk back then what is it called now the electric slide or something yeah, like the bus
1: stop it was a couple of things yeah remember the bus stop they won't do the yeah. turn the walk yeah. yeah
0: so that that's my memory of the miami lounge playing el coco and the people down the walk. <laughs> <laughs> I got stories, Lenny. You might need a.
1: That's <laughs> all right. I love it. This is what people want to know. Like I said, this is wonderful. It, we're happy yeah. to hear them because, like I said, yeah. nobody gets
0: to hear this stuff unless you tell yeah. the story. So pre disco, as I'm mentioning, like ecstasy, passion, and pain, and early Tramp stuff. I think one of the songs back then that I could really say filled me up with with disco. Before disco, I mean, till this day, I could listen to that song and get emotional. Is Waiting for the Rain by the fantastic Johnny C. Yeah, I go goosebumps. I said it like a week. Well, I got goosebumps. Then I could
1: hear the beginning part. Wow.
0: And that 45 provided the instrumental on the back, which was unusual. <clears throat> and then there was just... I noticed that I started liking the not obvious songs, like the Patty Joe <clears throat> records. And um, so many records changed my life, but that that one I could think of specifically having the 45, two of them, one to start with the instrumental, then mix into the vocal, and it'd be MFSB in the background, you know, Philea Soul records. And, um first choice, you know, the player, Guilty, all those records were pre-disco, but they paved the way. Philadelphia really, really, in my heart, I think really is where the roots of disco lie.
1: 100%. Yeah. No question. been yeah. verified so many times. Of course, <clears one throat> Trashy Records killed it, but that's another story.
0: Yeah, but and I, I soul- do think that I think that, you know, what I don't want to discredit Chicago because what they did <clears throat> was amazing. Trax and DJ International and Ralph Rosario and all, all those DJs, Marshall Jefferson, Mr. Fingers. But I still feel like house music also originated in Philly, if you will. You know, the term came from the warehouse, Frankie, Ron Hardy, Jackin, piano things. But I think a lot of that was coming off the doctor loves and the love sensations and the, you know, letting a man put a on
1: hundred percent. In fact, I, frankly, I
0: think, Frankie
1: he would say, Disco's Revenge is house music. Yeah. Damn. But here's the thing now, Danny, you're about 16, 17. Are you seeing you're playing out in Brooklyn. Are you seeing this as a career at that time? I mean, we're talking at this age now, but at that Mm -hmm. time, can you see the projection of that as this is gonna be a career path for you
0: in that early stages? Yeah, you know, it's interesting you say that because this is around the time where I was really becoming obsessed with it because now I'm working in a club Besides just being hungry for it and just looking at pictures and probably crying sometimes because my brothers were getting dressed to go out. And they're, you know, I'm 14, 15 and I can't go out, you know, and I'm getting like jealous because they want to go out, drink, drunk, fight, pick up girls. Like they ain't going for the music. They ain't going for the lights. I want to go. I want to hear that. (laughs) I want to see that. And um now I was doing it, but this also got um, a little tough because now, I'm, let's say I'm 17, I'm in my second year of high school, and now I'm displaying no interest in school, and I wanted 100% be a DJ, Ooh, my parents are like, what are you, <laughs> get ready for this.
1: Here we go, everyone, this is- go. everybody's got this speech,
0: <clears throat> I'm waiting to hear this one. All right, so my mother's like, "What do you mean you want to be a DJ? What do you mean, like cousin Brucey, Wolfman Jack? Who knows these people? I don't know." How Murray you- the K.
1: <laughs> Let me say it slow for everybody. Murray the K. You want to be like them? W. What do you mean? What
0: do you mean by DJ Danny? Yeah, like that. I'm replace a band. <laughs> I just want to stand in a booth from 9 to 5 a.m., shut everything off and go back the next day and do it again. But I was too young. I wasn't really even allowed to go to nightclubs yet. <clears throat> you mentioned the um, polka cellar Monastery. And I want to bring that back because those are the clubs my brothers and a lot of my cousins and relatives. My mother was one of nine children, so I got a a, a lot of cousins probably neighbors of yours. They're all over Long Island. And um, so somehow my brothers talked to like the bouncers at a monastery, which became Butterfields. And they sneak me into this club where girls had to be 23, guys had to be 25, with jackets to get into this place when it became Butterfields. But they snuck me in just to see the DJ, see the lights, hear the sound, and get me out. Well, Paul wasn't there that night. It was Jenny Costa. <laughs> Can you believe it? A female DJ that long ago. And uh, I haven't seen or heard from her in ages, but I know she was doing a radio show. So she woke up and she's like, who is this? You know, she gives me a oh, cut up here, you know. She my brother's like, you just let him see the place. <laughs> like... So like Paul, when he first met me, like, what was this kid? Jenny was a uh, super cool. So I saw the club. I saw people dancing. And then I could say, "Then, then it just felt like this is where it belonged.
1: It was a natural feeling, right, Danny? Come on. Was it was it. natural. Was Nobody it. understands that. Nobody understands when we say that.
0: Yeah. It almost makes no sense. Why do you want to see these strobes and disco balls and dots and-
1: and wait till he tells you later about his walking into the garage the first time. Like <laughs> I'm about. he'll tell you, I know it's gonna come because that's a life change. That's like meeting God when you come to the garage. You know he's gonna reborn. tell you that later. when you're reborn. You're like <laughs> never, you know, you thought you were a DJ. Like I tell this all the time. You think you're a DJ till you go see the Paris garage, you hear the sound system, and Larry Levin. You go, uh, you don't, you go, you just, you just stop. I remember being sick that night. Just sick, but in a good way, going, I got to go home and throw everything I got out and start <laughs> all over again. <laughs> but anyway, this is Danny's story. It's not Lenny's story. Yeah. So, so we've now, you get to go in Butterfields, you meet Jenny Costa, and Jenny became a very well known name. She played in Queens in the Brooklyn Circuit. Couple oh, wow. She didn't travel around the world, but she was a disco DJ that Disco 92 fell in love with. They would have her do some mix shows, and eventually she wanted to do Hot 103. And played all those Dynamite Fever shows that they have going yeah. on. That's so what he's talking about. Wow, Dan, I didn't know you met Jenny so young. Yeah, because oh, Jenny's Jenny's got about 66, 67. She's only a few years older. Right. She's not and, that. Yet. Um,
0: <clears throat> she was young too when you met her. For novelty purposes, on the same night, my brothers got we they got me in Butterfields. And Eliphas. Eliphas was, oh, I got goosebumps again. Look at that. Is that Tony Gio playing at Eliphas? Was, that night it was Jimmy U. Why you? And I remember hearing, I don't want to lose your love by the emotions.
1: Holy.
0: Then I was like, oh, where am I? I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to leave. I couldn't stay because my brothers had to get me home. I was young. And uh, that was so many pre-disco moments. And then I started going there regularly. Um, People may not know that's the, if you know of the famous serial killer, the son of Sam, he shot people in a car right outside of Eliphas. And um, now it's uh, Steve Aoki's father's restaurant. (laughs) It became a, what is it called again? That's, he is referring to the Benny Benny Hanna, yeah.
1: How I learned about that, about on um, that, when you just said, George Benson told me that. George I Benson. didn't even know about Steve Aoki and his father. And the How did you know, know that? George told me, no, I'll tell you why real quick. George was the, the next door neighbor to Steve and his sister. And his father- Came to Georgia, and wanted him to invest money in the Benihana when they were starting in the 70s. That's how cra- he told me that. I was like, what? I didn't know that.
0: Oh, it's crazy. You just go on and on and on because these are the things that weave together, you know, that you would, we're talking like the way we would talk in record shops and record pools and you meet the other DJs and you hear stories like this. But it's it's, it's so missing now that it's, it's depressing.
1: This is why I created True House Stories to have people like yourself come on and give the education because there's this place. This is not written anywhere. I know it's not. This doesn't exist. Sorry. Keep going, Danny. And it's incredible. And stop being shy. You got more to tell. Come on. All right. right. Elephants. Wait a minute. Did you realize an elephant that was a Richard Long sound system? No. That was an RLA. Really. And he had three way crossover Jimmy U in that booth. Yeah, as yes. I saw the pictures, I wasn't old enough to go yet, but I did see, yeah. and I spoke to Richard, and, and that was one of the on his pamphlet back in the day. He used yeah. to have Regine's Paris Garage, all of them, and Eliphas was listed as one of the systems that they did in Queens. Wow, I never knew that.
0: Um, <clears throat> you know, I I started getting addicted to going to clubs. Um, once I was able to, you know, you asked me about that. I what did I envision? I guess all I could envision was seeing myself doing what Jenny, Paul, Jimmy, you, and these other DJs were doing, or the ones I would read about, like Tom Savarese, and um, you know, I mention a place that really, really changed my life before the garage, more than. More than any other club, I think, because I was in that DJ puberty stage. (laughs) And where I really learned to pick up on mixing and genres was was a club that nobody ever talks about, but it was massive. It was on 42nd Street in Times Square called Starship Discovery One. You're smiling. You heard of it? Nobody talks about this place.
1: I I have a couple of times. Johnny Bonifiglio played there, and and uh, and some other people. Yes, I again I wasn't old enough, but thanks to Jackie McCoy, he gave me pictures. I love Jackie. Jackie's got all the paraphernalia, yeah. and he gave me the pamphlet. Yeah, tell us about Starship because Bacho mentioned to me about Starship too. Bacho Mangal.
0: Well, Starship <clears throat> was a mega club. It had the first floor. Kochek, cabaret, and then upstairs was the main room dance floor. And it had a big sound system, larger dance floor. DJ Booth was on the floor, but they had these, um, what's that plastic called? Um, All over today, plexiglass. And there was like four big bubbles, two facing out, two facing the sides. So you could actually just walk up and look right in and watch the DJs and the light men. Another magnet. I was glued. These guys probably been like, get this kid out of here. But the DJs there, if I'm saying his name correctly, was Joey Palmenteri. that ring a bell? Yes, I,
1: I was wrong. That's correct. Joey Palminteri, He's not there. Joey Bonifiglia. Joey played a uh, conflict of Bats.
0: Yeah, I don't so, think I know that name.
1: I'm getting all crazy now. I'm forgetting
0: who's where. Right. Joey Palminteri, right. Joey Palminteri, Ernie Dundee, and Tom Savarese. These were the names that I uh, remember circulating there. And now they're playing records I knew because now I started buying records. But now we're talking about the disco era, you know, when Casablanca started knocking them out left and right. And Constellation Orchestra and Prelude. Come on and dance, dance. And then, so they were playing that high energy disco Macho, I'm a man, Um, you know, goes on like forever and it's funky and grungy and has the breaks and the drums, the percussion. But then there would come a moment where they would drop it down to Trans Europe Express, you know? And I was like, oh, what? What just happened? Peter Brown, do you want to get funky? Dance with me. And... The place would erupt. They would play, um, what's that funkadelic song, "Flashlight," but then they would bring it back up. They would play songs like uh, "Sandy Mercer," "Mamma Me." (laughs) Um, The slow side was uh, "Play With Me," but the B side is "You Are My Love." Somebody recently sampled that and looped it, and I'm like.
1: You're right, that's what I do when I see those two. I go.
0: <laughs> I know.
1: You go on Luigi Production, H and L Records. I remember it clear. The purple label, I could see it. Ain't that something? As you said it, so, as you said it, I can see it. I'm going purple label, H and L. I
0: know. You know, this is what yeah. we like. Okay, mental note. So not so there was what I was getting from Starship was these DJs that were technically really skilled like how they would you know beat match and you hear it go off sometimes but you feel them find it you know and and you you know you feel it you like it you get it <clears throat> and how they can drop it down and then slowly bring the energy back up <clears throat> i remember hearing songs like full time thing by worldwind on roulette these songs changed my life And um, it's amazing how some of those songs from back in that era, I don't care if I ever hear again because they might be corny, but if I hear them, I know them backwards. Like I know the lyrics, I know the label, I know the year. But, and that's that's what's missing. Again, talking about the records and the labels and the information, the credit history, who played guitar, who played the sax, who is the engineer. Who remixed it? Um, So yeah, Starship Discovery 1 on 42nd Street was probably, I don't know, maybe 1976, 79 period. But then I went to the loft and saw what they were doing. And when I walked into the loft, David Mancuso was playing Mike Theodore Orchestra. Here comes the bull. (laughs) which I sampled castanets from that for elements. And um, yeah, again, like you see balloons, I felt you're in somebody's house. It's not like Starship or Elephus or Butterfields, the other clubs I've been to. The Inferno with uh, Renee Hewitt. I went there a lot, started learning how to dance, doing the hustle. Lenny, I was on a TV show.
1: <laughs> Breaking news, everyone. Breaking news. What are we on? Is it 11
0: alive? We have a 5 alive. Which show are you on? Come on. You remember this? It was the Sister version of Soul Train called Soul Alive.
1: Yes, I know the show. It's the best to run there. Oh my God. You were on that show?
0: Oh my God. If I could see that now I Google. Would you have a Keanu shirt a on? Come up. <clears throat> A couple come up on YouTube, but not the one I was on. I was dancing the hustle to "That's the Meaning," uh, "Beautiful Bang," was it? <clears throat> and then they say they make us gather. It's count down when they get to zero. We're all going to clap because Grace Jones is about to perform, but she's not there. They're going to cut into a video, but we have to act like we're the audience, <laughs> and. I had big hair back then. Oh my god! I was, you know, trying to do the Travolta, spongy heels, probably coloring in my mustache. Make you look older. Everybody wants
1: to be older back then. Everybody wants to be older than their age.
0: I know. Looking to what are we going to do with this?
1: (laughs) Now (laughs) we're trying to figure out how we're going to get young again. Now. Oh. You know, yeah, history. I, I have a history. I got a question for you. No, yep. you're looking through watching Joey Palmentari and them playing Tom Savarese. How important was it for you coming from Brooklyn to make a mark to getting into Manhattan to possibly hmm. get right. a job in the city? This
0: is, okay.
1: yeah, that's important. You know, how big was that for you?
0: Well, I've talked about this many times because when I'm asked this question was similar, similar way of putting it. There was nothing bigger to shoot for than crossing the bridge from Brooklyn to Manhattan. That's all there was. Was you know, you could maybe play at or Butterfields, Clubs in Long Island and Queens, but the big ones were in Manhattan. So once I turned 18 and I was able to, you know, go out legally. I started seeing all these clubs. And again, it's like seven nights a week. I started going everywhere. Better Days, Zanzibar, the Limelight, which was actually a gay bar on 7th Avenue before it was the church. I think there's no connection. And up the block was, right up the block from Limelight was a club called Gables, as in Clark Gables. And I was just bouncing around everywhere. Um, it, so that was the big dream, was to get a job in Manhattan because now you know you'd be more legitimate, you'd be making more money, and actually being able to afford, you know, coming into my 20-year-old self and, like, how do I pay for this? How do I pay for records? How do I pay for anything? Because I was still living with my family. So any penny I made from setting up bowling pins or sweeping floors went right towards records. Yeah, yes. so you, had to. you had to make it. Yeah. So after the Miami Lounge, that was like 76, 77, 78, probably. I don't know if it went to 79. I can't really remember exactly, but my guess is 76 or 79. Then in 1980, I got a job working like five days a week in a roller disco in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. And that's when everything changed for me because I didn't have to wait for Fridays and Saturdays to play at the Miami Lounge. And there was such such a neighborhood, kind of like your brothers, your cousins. Everybody felt like your cousin in Williamsburg if you went to school with them or the friends of your brothers, you know, they come, Danny, play that song. No, 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 no. Put on the uh, Spring of Fair, Donna Summer. <laughs> you know. And, you know, you did it, you know. You just wanted to make them happy. But when I went to the roller disco, that's where I really started to learn how to really, really mix and learn the craft because I had so many sessions to play five days a week. And that's when I was also more legal to go to the city's clubs. I'm talking about. So after the, uh, a night, like going out to Starship, well, no, this was that was during Miami Lounge. That was more Paradise Garage, that I'd go from the garage, stay up all night. Sometimes I would go to Vinyl Mania and beg, what was that song he was playing? I want to go bang, I need it. Oh, he's only got that in reel-to-reel that ain't coming out for a while. I stayed up for this. And I used to go straight from the garage, not always, but a couple of times from the adrenaline, straight to the roller disco to do the matinee at noon. (laughs) So here I am playing for moms and their kids, you know, going around in this roller rink. And I'm playing Moody by ESG. And the owner is calling the phone in the booth. DJ, pick up. DJ, pick up. These kids want to hear Always and Forever and Wishing on a Star. (laughs) I don't even know. And what. you're
1: playing Time
0: Warp by Eddie
1: Grant. Yes. <laughs>
0: like, what is this? Or living on the front line because yeah, you're in Larry exactly. the band, Kill you with it. You were like. Money, no love. I could just name so many. But, you know, they wanted to hear the, the, the radio stuff. So somehow that lasted for almost three years. Three but, years, five years. Yeah, days. a lot of good stuff was coming out at that era. You know, like I was starting getting a record pool and there was all the, you know, the whispers and all those kind of like bands. And then electronic music started happening with the drum machines and uh, started to become easier to be a DJ. Yeah, right. You actually can
1: actually mix the records without killing right. yourself
0: through a night. Yeah, it wasn't like waiting for the rain and, uh, you know, whirlwind. Like, on turntables with no pitch control and yeah so and then it was going to Starship studying and learning you know how to know how to nudge a record certain things you know start from the break go back to the intro rework the break buy two copies of a lot of records to make it more exciting and uh
1: at the same time around that time, Danny, you're watching, as we all did, other DJs becoming superstars at the same time that people we knew, like Jelly Bean was just starting to get his position at Funhouse not too long after. It was
0: later. To me, that was like-
1: 82-ish, 81, 82, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I guess you can say that. Well,
1: yeah. let's say 79. Okay. Renee Hewitt is at Fernos and I know Kenny's yeah. working as a light man, Kenny Carpenter. Yeah. Right.
0: You got, you got. In the hustle with big hair, hairspray. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think of um, Jelly Bean. I went to Funhouse, Roxy. I went to all these clubs. I mentioned I went to the loft and I immediately picked up on what David was doing. Because no matter how I evolved with music, whether it was disco or craft work, Marauder and so on, my first love was always soulful music. I loved some rock and roll. I still listen to it. But the Philly and Motown sound is what raised me, if you will. Which is why it made so much sense when I started going to um, Inferno. And then uh, Starship played a lot of funky stuff. But they were playing Casablanca disco as well and stuff relative to that. But The Loft was more similar to my roots, with the Philly and the, you know, what can I think of? Can I think of, like, Los Conquistadores Chocolates, and there's so many. I don't want to start thinking of all these titles now, but quickly after that, my friends from the neighborhood that used to come to the roller disco that were my age or older were, like, Danny, you gotta go to the garage. You gotta go to the garage. Tell me about Larry and Larry. And of course I had heard about it, but it was a membership-only club. I wasn't in for the record yet. And um, it just seemed like it for no reason at all, it took some time for me to get there. So 78, 79, 77, I started going to clubs in Manhattan. But it wasn't until <clears throat> late 79, early 80 that I discovered the garage and then everything really fully made sense. Then um, I tell the story when I walked in the garage back then, I think the garage was still only open on Saturdays and just one night a week. And I believe the opening hours was 1 AM till like 11 AM zone. And I got there early and when I got there the <clears throat> yeah, you're walking up that famous ramp you go to the booth where you pay your $15 and the big paradise garage neon sign above the register and you hear the music coming out of the wall through the, the vents for the AC or the, just the air and you just can't wait to get beyond that wall to see what you're walking up. You might be in a long line as well, and you hear the music coming out of that wall. And I'm like, "Oh my god! I can't wait to just get beyond that door, and see what I'm hearing, and what they've all been telling me." You got to go to the garage. You got to go to the garage. So get in, whip that turn, right near a stack, <laughs> and all the lights were still on, like all the pin spots, All the main dance lights were on. It was still changing gels, adjusting shit with ladders. And I'll never forget it. I was reborn with Peter Brown. Do you wanna get funky with me? And he just kept playing like that burning love breakdown, which is very minimal. And to me, it's the birth of minimal (laughs) in a way.
1: I wanna take a fire on its high.
0: Uh, and it's it's
1: slow and it's slow and it's sexy and it's erotic
0: and the whole and I knew it because I was playing it because this wasn't until like 79 80 that I heard him playing that but you know I, I already had the 12 inch and I'm hearing something that I knew and it was crystal clear the record has an amazing appeal because of its minimalness so it was magnified by a thousand from wherever I ever heard it, from Miami Lounge or in a car. I was like, ah, took my breath away. So now I'm like just leaning on that extension, like looking around, absorbing it like a sponge, taking it in. Like, what am I witnessing? What am I about to witness? Because there wasn't that many people there yet. And then sure enough, slowly, you know, the room is getting... People are coming in quickly, and the lights are starting to get down. And Larry's going up to the mezzanine to where his boot was wasn't very visible. I mean, you could see him up there, but it wasn't like at all like what people see and want to see today is this close to the DJ and face him. Now, in like those days, hand on a stage. all those clubs, high.
1: All those clubs boots were yeah. away. Like the Wizard of Oz, away from the dance floor.
0: Yeah. And, yeah, I was mesmerized, and it immediately became my favorite club. (laughs) And I started going weekly, and I became a Paradise Garage addict. And I was a lot of a wallflower, (laughs) because I just couldn't believe what I was hearing, seeing, watching, feeling... Because the people, it was different than everywhere else. It was almost like going to like a dance studio, just watching people express themselves with their bodies and stuff. And, you know, I, I always remind people that, again, this was before Paradise Garage opened on Fridays as well. But it was always a predominantly gay black club and larry's music was that it was it was a soulful up-tempo disco sound so um pleasure take a chance and you know i'm like what he would just come right in with like sometimes his mixing made no sense but it made so much sense Cause it was like, you kidding me? Did you just do that? Like, it just came in with that horn, you know? It just like knock you on the head right out of the speaker. But you loved it, and to watch the reaction from the people erupt, you know, from how he did it or where he brought it in from. Yeah, nobody else played like that, and, um, and got, nobody else could get away with that. Exactly. We
1: would have been fired. Exactly, Danny. Explain that. You would have went home to try <laughs> to <do> that. explain <laughs> that. Because I tried it, I got fired
0: from Bear Jones for that. I tell that story. Go ahead. You know, it, I do kind of tell people that about how where we are now in this modern era. Like our jobs, not really to make people dance anymore; just make them stay there. You know, because if you were a DJ back in our days and you cleared the floor, the owner would come up to you, and say, you know, oh, put something on these people know and want to dance to. You just cleared the floor. How about Otherwise, this one? Play something good. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you like whatever, right? You got something good.
0: Can you put it on right now? Like right now? Otherwise, you'd lose your job to another DJ. It was as simple as that. You keep clear on the floor. You're not a good DJ. You weren't helping the bar, you know, make money or look good with an empty dance floor. That was a whole different concept at the loft in the garage. People were there for, because they knew they were going to hear good stuff and in a different way. And, you know, there was a lot of, you know, one thing that people, I don't know if they know this <clears throat> or to look at it this way. And I can relate the Paradise Garage to something that happened years later, 10 years later with the sound factory and Junior Vasquez and Phil Smith and Christina Visco. When Garage was there <clears throat> on King Street, those years, there was nowhere else to go. Larry had the market cornered because it was the only after hour of its kind besides The Saint. Now, The Saint was predominantly white gay, playing the high energy, you know, Patrick Cowley and so on. And tons of other great records, uh, great songs and artists. But The Garage was more salsa, prelude, West End, Tanner Gardner, and, you know, the indie stuff as well. Billy Who. Um, but yeah. So if you were going to Better Days and you and it closed at four, you'd want to go to the garage for after office if you left the Zanzibar, if you, you know. But you had to be a member. So you couldn't get in unless you were a member or with a member. So that, on top of Larry's unique style and that Richard Long style system, made it so special. There was nowhere else on earth like that. Nowhere. You know, you had your fun house, you had your Studio 54, which also was an RLA sound system, but it wasn't the garage. The garage had no liquor. The garage was a place to go and gyrate and watch incredible performances by the, the groups that Larry did a lot of remixes for, the Town of Gardeners and the Lace and Christy Wilshire and Hanson and Davis and Chaka Khan and Patty LaBelle, and so many life changing moments there because it really, 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 really touched my soul like no other club. It was soulful, and here I was in a room full of um, probably 70% black.
1: Yeah, I I would say that's about right. Yeah. And him playing church every week
0: to everybody and giving him your ser- his sermon, the way. i he- glad you said that word because like being, a being raised Catholic, I went to Catholic school for six years. Of course, I had to go to church a lot. This was another version of church. It just was like, okay, this is the after party after you went to church. Some some kind of thing because what Larry was doing with the music. The people were reacting to it, and uh, what's the word on? Um, not reacting, but participating. The people were participating with the song, and you know he can lower the volume, and get the room to sing. You know, and I always tell people how just that alone gives me goosebumps and just make me feel like well, they never did that at starship. Loft didn't do that, maybe Zanzibar, but I can't remember. I didn't go there that much. But Saint, wherever, what have you, all these clubs, I don't remember any other DJ lowering the volume and getting the whole crowd, thousand people, to sing that song. And then boom, comes back in. He knew how to slap you in the face again with the sound. So... I learned a lot there. I learned from Larry how to be an artist as a DJ, how to make people feel what I'm feeling inside through the song, through the track, through the mixer and through the levels, knowing how to keep back and not put everything on 10. You got to say that. That peaking, right? That peak feel
1: when you want to yeah bring the room to that, Exact crescendo. crescendo.
0: Natural crescendos. No snare
1: rolls. <laughs> no no, no com- disco confetti. We're talking to the music.
0: Yeah, there was no uh, snare rolls. There was no uh, knobs on the mixer that would give you the <laughs> cappuccino. Yeah, <laughs> the air. <street. laughs> if you wanted a flange, Number you had 22, to yeah, exactly. pick <laughs> 22, pick up your coffee.
1: 22, pick up your coffee. Now that shit. Bravo, Danny!
0: Yes, that's where I learned it. You know, I love my effects. Don't get me wrong; I love the Pioneer mix with the onboard effects. But you know, less is better theory. No, your effect was
1: like how we all had on a piece of vinyl with maybe uh, some sort of air effect or something.
0: But yeah, I, I said yeah. if you you could put flange on the mixer now, but if you wanted to get flange back then, you had to play two records at the same exact time, or we use the reverb from the reel to reel to get the the reverb that made no sense off beat, but it was fun. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. It was in effect. Right. All, all par for the night. And you know what?
1: At that time, it was so fresh and new. Even if it was offbeat, it was
0: okay. Yeah. It was natural. Yeah. It was a natural thing. And that's the thing about Larry. Like, he took chances. Um people need to know and understand that he was working with Thorin's turntables which had the wheel in the middle and you know had to keep lifting up the needle he couldn't really back cue on those turntables which in latter years larry just got to the point where he stopped mixing and he just let records end people would clap and then he'd start the next one that's another story that's in yeah that's another story but here that's another I song.
1: Do, I do remember Joey and them having to run up to change the rubber bands because through the night the bands would get because they were belt driven, the bands would get wobbly, and the songs sure. would get wobbly. <laughs> it, but that's a whole other thing. That was all yeah. being in his living room. You were allowed for him. He was who was gonna fire him? His daddy? Michael Brody, who's I mean, that's all you
0: It almost happened. I know some stories where yes, it almost happened. Yes, but, yes. Uh, again, I don't want to get to the negative side of things, you know.
1: Ah, well, at the same time, like you said, he cornered the market. All those haters were on the side praying for her to fall off her crown. Just like every great mm.
0: DJ has that happen. Yeah, cuz you had one club and 100,000 DJs that wanted to do
1: Right? Everybody wants to play. Yeah.
0: I could be better than him.
1: I could do better. I am this. I am, you know, you hear this all the time. Yeah. Oh, he's tired.
0: But but I don't know him. I I got to know Larry <clears throat> through the record pool, to go into the office a few times for his membership and all that. And um I don't think what I got from him was that he was an insecure person. I think he felt stable and comfortable at his job. I mean, Paradise Garage and Larry were, you know, a marriage with Richie Long and the sound system, Michael Brody and Jaime. And uh, there was a family and they were, it was like an extension of the loft, just, you know, a hundred times magnified. Where you felt like you were at a house party, but a big nightclub. You were greeted by the Kochek people. You got to know the people behind the bar and the snack area. And um, it was cool. Security in front was always friendly to Noel. Um, What I was going to say is that, yeah, you, you could sense where some DJs were insecure because you know, it was territorial back then. You know, everybody wanted to cross that bridge to Manhattan and get a job in a big club. So. Because you made it. If you got Manhattan,
1: now you're. Right. Danny's in Manhattan. Oh, my God. Yeah. All our friends would say, he's in Manhattan now. Maybe now I can afford car. <laughs> yeah. We're not <laughs> talking even about the money. But that you cross the bridge and you got into an establishment that lets you play the whole night again. Yeah, opened to close. There was no opening
0: DJ then. None of that stuff. Exactly, that was our job, and that's also part of where it made sense. Just made simple sense that we told a a story and a journey because you're not going to play for eight hours. Nine to five ish, or you know, 10 to four, whatever it might be. You're not going to go in there and start with, uh, you know, San Francisco by the village people. You're going to start with the early, you know, slower, funky, it could be, you know, cut from a Stevie Wonder album or something, you know, all I do, whatever. But you tell a story, and then you have your natural crescendos the night which at the garage there was a lot of crescendos because it was within the songs a lot of them and if the band played forget it but you were just as excited when larry came back on that was like another crescendo yeah because he would rock you weekend
1: either before the show or after the show to get everybody hyped up again you're like yeah you know, six o'clock in the morning and garage is like 1.30 in the morning in a regular place. It's like six right. o'clock was fully... Full, remember, Danny, yeah. 6 a.m. is full power there. It's not like you know, one o'clock at a
0: regular spot. Yeah. And again, Larry could drop it down to Heartbreak Hotel by the Jacksons. And you're like, what? You know, and you loved it. You loved it. Because, you know, you knew he wasn't going to stay on like a... Down tempo, dreary kind of feeling. Unless he was in one of his moods where there was one time where he played it four times in a row. It's <laughs> like, what is she going through?
1: He's, he's pushing his <laughs> record down and breaks throat All right. So the education of her being a drama queen, and then you had other DJs like Jim Burgess at Quest, right. West and all these great, great DJs doing their things as well and making major impact with records and club wise you're growing up, coming up this is pre-house music everybody Pre, pre-house, is still disco, we're finding R&B disco which is becoming like D-Train era that stuff I know you're making a way now that you want to get your own spot, what do you do now so you're getting all this in and you're saying to yourself, I I, I need to do what I do now.
0: Right. What's where do we go from there for you? Right. Cause this would be like what happened after the Roller Disco, you know? And um, you mentioned D train, and that's where I started to like get those records. While I was playing at the Roller Disco, I would stop at the prelude office, West End office. Bobby Shaw, you know, get promos. He was always cool. And um, this was pre, this was before Strictly Rhythm and Nervous and Emotive and Big Ball. But um, electronic music, drum music, Skipworth and Turner, you know, uh, Billy Ocean, these records were coming through with drum machines and making it easier for us to mix. Thinking of Dynasty and... Uh, Shalimar, you know, it was all becoming like a sound for the roller disco, but a lot of it was a garage sound too. I mean, he didn't really go into like, thank God, a freestyle zone, you know, like, cause, <laughs> cause you had like the once Give Me Tonight, and Let the Music Play came out, you know, um, that took it to a whole different genre was born which kind of like stemmed from a planet rock numbers by craft work but that's a whole nother story in itself but um yeah so it was like where am i taking this what's the next phase because the roller disco wasn't going to last longer but now i had skills now i was in a record pool i joined the Sure record pool in the Bronx, Bobby E. Davis. Yeah, his name is on the Again, Alexis P. Suda. Bobby passed away, rest in peace. I didn't know that. I found that out later in years. And uh, so I was getting Sorry. all the promos.
1: You, yeah. you, Timmy Regisford, that's yeah. right. Benji Candelario, that was the only mm-hmm. pool that would have me, guys. Yeah. I couldn't get in for the record.
0: Yeah, me no either.
1: No way. Never happening. Till later, I became the producer DJ. Then they want you. But right. At that time, Bobby's like, come on, you come with us. Judy had had her elite. Um, yes, Judy's pool for the record was the creme de la creme. But yeah. if you got in a record pool, Danny, how important was that? Even getting in a record Oh, pool. just getting in a pool, yeah. It's like, I got in a pool.
0: yeah. You felt validated, you know? And so now comes about 1983, and then the roller disco closes, and I'm out of work. Um, I, okay, so now I'm of age, <laughs> and I don't remember where I saw an ad but there was an ad for a nightclub in Manhattan on 39th Street and 2nd Avenue called STIX, S-T-I-X. And I applied for that job the same day as Leslie Doyle. We both auditioned separately and we both got hired. STIX was a, a gay club that was formerly called Barefoot Boy, which I didn't know of. And now it was this new club, STIX, and we got hired. The thing with STIX, was that it was more of a lily white club so you know you would he, songs we'd be playing was like bonnie pointer heaven must have sent you and twilight zone and you know these disco-y kind of records but now i'm just such a big garage head i only got to play garage mu- music during the opening but then you had to get into this more of a saint vibe. And I was like, Ugh, I didn't really like it. I just wasn't into the fluffy high energy Carol Gianni music. I um, you know, I, love, I love, got to give it up for hitting my lover. But so many men, so little time and high energy and hated it, hated it, hated it. But it was my first job in a club in Manhattan. <laughs> so. You know, you're a DJ, you gotta play did you, did you have to play Abba Lay All You Love On Me? <laughs> <laughs> the visitors <laughs> The visitors
1: Oh, <laughs> well, you know what I mean I, We know about the visitors, but I'm talking about The Lay All You Love On Me is like the gay anthem at The Saint where you yeah. having to you were having to compromise your sound to fit the job to keep this job, right?
0: Yep, 100% this is where I go uh, back to how Larry LeVeck was Don't stop, you're moving me. I mean, don't get me wrong, some of them were cute. But when it got to like the, you know what I hated? Uh, probably the worst part of my career was having when they started doing like Broadway songs, like memory all alone in the Moon." No, you can't be making me play this. I wanna play Love is the Message and You know, Moody, you know, the Garage Records, which we got to play because thankfully, Leslie Doyle, she was a great DJ and she, her boyfriend was Bruce Forrest, who used to work at Better Days. And this is when I got into for the record, because now there was a connection. So now I'm playing at uh, sticks regularly, three, four nights a week. It was just me and her, open seven nights a week. And um, now I'm in a record pool. I get to meet Chip Pettibone uh, through Bruce Forrest. And, uh, you know, getting to know the industry through the garage, you know, the record pool, Danny Crivet. Um, oh, so many names. So many names have gone right now, too. It's said. Lost a lot of people in that era. And where did I go from six? Well, there's a lot of history right here that people have no idea what I'm about to say. Say it
1: now. Say it.
0: Say it. it, Please don't open it. I'm so (laughs) old that once I got the job at six, I also got gigs at Crisco Disco, which was probably the most infamous, legendary underground after-hour nightclub ever in New York. It was open seven days a week until 10 a.m. It was slow until 4 a.m. After 4 a.m., the Mud Club, Hurrah, Studio 54, Xenon, wherever people were partying and wanted a place to go afterwards, it was Crisco. People have in mind Crisco, like they think of it as like a leather bar kind of thing, but no, that was a bar. That the owner originally owned, but then he took over this big building on 15th street and still called it Crisco. But it was a raw after hour underground nightclub, completely illegal. They sold liquor. There was no liquor license. So it was a very unique place. Great DJs, Frank Core, Danny Rodriguez for the record, record pool members. And I got to play there a few times. Then I got a residency, and then it got shut down. That was in 83. <laughs> in 83, which I also got. I could tell people that, they'd be like, where are these places? I, I was a guest DJ twice at the Anvil. God forgive me. No,
1: where Felipe, <laughs> Rose, where Felipe Rose was discovered and danced at. Yeah. village people, yes, the Anvil on yeah. the west side. 12th Avenue,
0: everyone. I know. It was like forbidding for a kid like me, from Brooklyn, you know, Catholic Italian. Wait, wait,
1: wait. Jesus Christ, Mary. You're um, to the place you're doing. What are you doing? What are you I doing? promise I won't go in the basement. Right, oh, <laughs> no, it's a nice place, Ma. It's really nice. Good people. They're dancing. They really like what I'm doing. They really like me.
0: <laughs> Can you believe it? So, yeah, I have a lot of history behind me with that. That's all right? I didn't know about the animal
1: part. I didn't know. I know Richie Rivera played there too, I think. Yeah,
0: Yeah. that was that era. They asked me to play twice. (laughs) I remember playing Stars by uh, Sylvester, you know, getting a little like mystical, um, Sea Hunt by Mega Patrick Howley. Oh, but yeah again it was part of the fluffy stuff too.
1: But yeah, but you had to you you had a you had two crowds in those yeah. you didn't have just garage, you had mm-hmm. twelve West, I say, or that kind of crowd, Saint and you Right. Had- it was
0: all intertwined. It was like again and bring up Leslie because Leslie was really good friends with uh, some of the DJs from the Saint. Um Besides Robbie Leslie, there was uh, Michael Fearman, Sharon White. Um, There's one in particular, Sean Buchanan. He passed away, but Leslie was good friends with him. So what we were doing at six was a mashup of Garage, my life there for several years, and Bruce Forrest playing soul, Steve Arrington and all that stuff. At Better Days and her being really good friends with the same DJs. Now we're both DJs at six. So yeah, we could drop it down bra. Boom, boom, da 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 da. We got the crowd going to some of that stuff, but we couldn't really do long sets of Garage Better Days, Zanzibar House Loft. And, um, uh, after six, um, I don't know if I, I, if I left there or if it closed down, I don't remember. But then I was in a um, what's the limbo for a couple of years. So I got an offer to, to go to Miami to play at a club that was open, that was open there called Cheers. Frank Corr moved down to Florida. Tommy Moore, a DJ from New York, also moved down there. Um, Tommy got the job at a club called Cheers. Now they took over a store next door. was making a dance floor. It was just a video bar. They built a dance floor, said we're going to open seven nights a week. We need another DJ. Tommy called me. I tried it out. I wound up staying there for five years. He and I were the resident DJs, just like six, seven nights a week. We split the shifts, four nights, three nights, fill-ins. And that's where... The rest happened for me. Yes,
1: I tried to, but you he
0: hear him say this
1: seven nights a week. It's yeah. a job, everybody. <laughs> it's not just like he's getting on a plane like later on in life. Yeah. This is, I got to go to work
0: every, you know, exist. four to five nights a week. That did not exist. I mean, they didn't have flyers when I started. We had eight track tapes and you put the stamp on it. I still can see Paul's name on a, on a stamp on um, several of the DJs. But I had a stamp made. It says, Danny a DJ, cassettes and 8-tracks, 8-tracks and cassettes. And when Brooklyn was still 2 2 I still, <laughs> I could show you, record. I came across, I don't know why it was on Get It Up by the Time 12-inch, but I had the stamp on there. I was like, that's pre that. But, yeah, so this is before flyers and raves and, you know, club culture in a whole different way, limelight, club kids, ecstasy. It just went to a whole different planet. So you're and down there five years in Miami, baby. Five years. Right. So 1985, I established Miami, get a residency at Cheers. And 1985 was also the first year of the Winter Music Conference. Which I had missed because that was March, and I moved there in October. I think I'm a little forgetful. I didn't. I don't know if I just missed it because I remember going to Miami in late '84. I started working. At, I think I just came back to New York to get my stuff and moved to Florida, so I missed the first conference. I didn't miss any other after that. I participated in like 34 conferences. And that's where I got uh, recognition, was at the Winter Music Conference. Showcases came on at the nightclubs after, uh, I mean, the, the conference would be held at like a convention center, the hotels, delegates would come from all over. You'd get the badge, you'd be on a panel, you'd watch other people on panels, all like I was so ecstatic to see like Arthur Baker, Jelly Bean, Shep, Petty Bone, Africa Bambaataa on these panels talking about their careers and me feeling like this is what I want to do because I hadn't really gotten to the studio yet. So now I'm just a DJ. And at Cheers, we would have some of the acts showcase themselves. And uh, I remember having Naomi, Joyce Sims, Taylor Dane, um, several people. And the thing with me and Cheers was that our club, like the garage and sound factory, had the market cornered because we were the only after-hour licensed place. So Cheers had a legal, a legal uh, till 6 a.m. liquor license. Everywhere else had to close at three you know, again,
1: I can't hear you. I'm sorry. I mean, everybody come in right after three,
0: you'd get that last crowd
1: packed in there. Yeah, so
0: like I was saying about Crisco, so with Cheers, after three we would get the gothic crowd from Fire and Ice where Tony Garcia and Carlos Menendez were DJs where, you know, it's funny, I, I just played a record in Brooklyn the other night that The the sound guy sent me a text yesterday saying, I can't believe you played that. Thank you for playing that. And it was definitely from my uh, gothic period. Do you know Our Darkness by Anne Clark? Yes. It's It's got a punch to it. And it's it's like this woman speaking poetry. It's like the kind of record you could imagine Larry playing because it was avant-garde and different, but it had the chops. It had like, the break parts. And um, so, yeah, when a lot of the clubs closed there, straight or gay, we would get the after-hour crowd. The industry also flocked there. Um, I could just think of, oh my God, I'm thinking their names now: Curtis Urbina. One of the last time I thought of Curtis, and uh, Bobby Shaw, and Mike Weiss, and Gladys Pizarro, because now these labels were coming into play. Um, and um, because I was there 85 to 90, so every year we had showcases, and Larry Flick at Billboard started writing about me. Carrie Mason, a dance music report, <laughs> which was part of Tommy Boy Records, so I got to meet Tom Silverman in Miami and his wife, and the whole industry. Mario Lopez from PolyGram and. Tony Monty, Vince Pellegrino, all these people. What's his name? Brad LeBeau. And they
1: would come back, Danny, talking about the night at the spot. Yeah. After Everybody recapping after WMC talking about your sets.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I was also a Billboard reporter. Right. Yeah. And I was in Bill Kelly's record pool. Bill Kelly's the owner of the Winter Music Conference. Back then it was Two record pools joined. That was Bill Kelly, and Lou Pascendi of the Florida record pool in Fort Lauderdale. So, then in 1988, I was like, I want to make a record because Latin Rascals, uh, Mantronics, Jelly Bean, Shep, um, so many names. Arthur Baker, Oli Jelari, of course. Everybody was getting in the studio and making records, cutting records, and you mentioned Benji. And I'm like, I knew I had that gift in me since I was that kid that displayed talent with piano by ear. Same thing with guitar. We're like, you gotta put this kid in lessons. He understands music. And then I was like, I need to get in the studio, I need to make a record. So the sampling thing started Acid House, uh, Chicago started knocking them out left and right. I was like, I got to make a record. So I went to the studio. I went in and I made Waiting for a Call. I called myself Deep State and I got signed to Atlantic Records through Vince Pellegrino and Ken Commissar and Joey Carvello. By the time it came out, it was Joey Carvello. Ken Commissar went to Epic. And then I started getting hired. Ken Commissar was at Epic. He hired me to remix Dead or Alive. And uh, I did that and found love by Double D while i was still living in Miami and found love went number one in Billboard dance chart. And then I did the love I lost on Seventh Avenue on Atlantic Records by Seventh Avenue. And you know, they were all telling me, now I talk to these people every week because I'm a Billboard reporter. And they're like, Danny, you got to come back to New York. You got to come back to New York. If you want to pursue this career and be like Jelly Bean and Shep and your mentors, you got to do it. Otherwise, Miami's got expose and Miami Sound Machine. You're not going to get very far there if your roots are garage and all that. And, and that's the rest is really the history. I moved back to New York in 90 and pursue that. Peter Dow, Tommy Musto was a big, big influence on me as a programmer because he helped me. Um, my first remix in New York was Patrick O'Hearn featuring uh, some rapper and Tommy Musto was going to program for me. Introduced me to D&D Studios on 39th Street and He helped me hire Barbara Tucker to do background vocals. So she was doing the ad living and this is 1990. Right. (laughs) So now I didn't have a DJ job until 96 in New York. Right. I remember that. I remember you were out for a while. I remember that. Well, I could keep talking to There was that, um, Time. I did get a couple of gigs, just no residency. Like I would play, I can't even remember some of the places. I got to play with Tony Humphreys at uh, uh what's that club? Uh Aqua Booty, which was Jackie60. Right. Johnny Dynell. Yeah, that club was Twisted. I loved it. That's where I started experiencing, you know, uh, Paul. Alexander on the microphone, "Hello," it <laughs> he was just, you know, entering a world. It was like almost like poetry, kind of like House of Extravaganza type phrases and things. But Johnny Danel was the main DJ, at Jackie 60. But then there was a night called Aqua Booty, and I played there a few times, even with Ted Patterson. I love Ted Patterson. Oh yes, you know. great Cuoco. That's who did Aqua book. Greg Coco. Greg. I've to him at Whole Foods once or somewhere like that. I was like, Greg. So he had me, Tony Humphreys, Ted Patterson, and I can't really remember who else. And so I was guest DJing at some of these places. You know, I don't remember what year it was, but I can also tell people I actually got to play at Studio 54 once. It was horrible. It was like this off night. They rented the place, you know, because it still always remained as a theater for for events. And do you know Jackie Christie? She, yeah. She used to be at 8 Ball Records all the time. Well, some promoter, I don't remember who it was, hired me and her to play one night at Studio 54. And uh, the DJ booth was in the opposite of where the main DJ booth was for. What, what was that considered like? The main seating area When you're prestigious
1: Oh, in the um, Orchestra seats and all the um- right.
0: Yeah, so It was in the opposite of the where The heyday DJ Used to be and it was You know, it was a, a Flop, but I got to Play there <laughs> Yeah, unless you
1: played During um, the era Of Richie Kazar Or it's that's the Trude Studio, Nicky Siano, Nicky Ciano. Mickey Ciano yeah. Ken, even Kenny Carpenter. Yeah, yeah, got it.
0: Yeah, I got to meet Michael Jackson there. Yeah, I know. I saw the pictures. That picture is around. Yes, you know, I've never posted that picture on Instagram. I don't know why, but me, and my manager Guy, was talking about it. it. Was like we come across flyers for something uh, for some merchandise and. Did you never use that picture of Michael Jackson? I said, I don't know why. I said, I think because I can't just post it without telling the story. Yeah, you got to explain it. Yeah. yeah. And it's like Instagram is like. A it's just me and Michael at
1: studio. We know with you, there's always a story. <coughs> there's, always, there's always a story. It has to be, you know, because you're not just. These are not moments like now. That yeah. just happened with a flash of a camera. Right. There was a lot of pe- things that went on behind the scenes that unless you say it, they don't really get it. You know, let's say, I'm, you know, you really
0: explain it. And, and you know, without getting into the whole story, what people in a novel, novelty, you know, the nostalgic kind of way is why was Michael Jackson there in the first place? There was a private party for Yul Brynner's birthday. People are like, going to be like, Yul Brenner, who's that? He's a famous actor, Telly Savalas, The the King and I.
1: Right, don't forget the Ten Commandments, he plays the Egyptian pharaoh. (laughs) Where's your Moses now? (laughs) I'll let your people go. <laughs> I'll let you. you know, that's how I always remember the Ten Commandments every every holiday.
0: They put that on. There's Yul Brenner. Yeah. I don't know why I said Telly Savalas before. Because both- but it's, true. it's the head, true. The Kojak, he had no hair in his head. Yeah. Telly Savalas and uh, Yul Brenner.
1: So it was uh, a Yul Brenner party in studio, but Michael Jackson ends up there and you happen to be there.
0: And who's the guy I said? Who's your Moses now would have been Ernest Borgnine made no That's sense a- in movie. No sense, but maybe we could say that for another Moses. moment.
1: Moses. This, <laughs> is- of, this is great. This is, I mean, so- it is- Sunday. <laughs> it's great. Are you kidding? So you're in you're in New York now and you and I remember that time for you. You were playing. And you were playing Soulful House music too and and right. records and you also made another great track, harmonica track. Mm-hmm. This is pre-twisted. Pre, you know, you jumping that direction and changing. I'm going to ask that yeah. question. You know, the Soulful House to all of a sudden Danny makes a right turn and changes musically and we were all scratching our heads going, wow. You know, I asked you. I asked you this twenty-five, year, whatever twenty. I had, when you and I remember you telling me why, but I said, "Why did you do it?" And, and we know why, but
0: only you can explain it here. You know. Thank you, Lenny. I think I think I'm gonna finally explain it in a way that came to me, like how I evolved from such soulful roots to being, like I just played in L.A. on. Last Sunday, 100% techno, like real pure classic techno, that would have made no sense. I even said to so the driver, was asking me about the garage that brought me back and forth from the hotel to the club. He's like a avid follower of you know, the, he's probably watching this young guy too. I said Larry would be rolling in his grave. <laughs> here's what I'm gonna play tonight. But at the same time, I think he'd be proud to see, cause you know, nobody maybe thought that he would be playing uh, Problems DMR, you know, and records like, you know, some of those off the wall tracks. And um, um, <clears throat> so I'm gonna explain how it came to me, how it changed. First, I'll say that there was a, um, besides Jackie 60 playing a couple times, Johnny Danell and Aqua Bodie, um, uh, it came to me before some of the other small places that I played. Um, and I wanted to mention that um, Matt E. Silver, does that name ring a bell to you? He was a promoter. I remember that. Like, I, I haven't heard that name I See can't believe song?
1: it just came to me. I can't, I can't remember, remember, I remember that. Name. I was like, Matt East, I remember that
0: name. Yes. Matt E. Silver. Um, in my in Manhattan, the Club The Sound Factory was only open on Saturdays. It was similarly designed and built to be a model of the Paradise Garage. Saturdays only, no liquor, dance party, after hours. Junior Vasquez was a DJ. <clears throat> that all originated for him, Christina, through Baseline. But I never got to go to Baseline because I was living in Miami. And then Matt E. Silver, <clears throat> I don't know if he convinced Phil, but he opened, got them to open Friday at the Sound Factory. And I got to play there with Louis Vega, Doc Martin, and uh, Derek Fox. and. Junior wanted to kill us all, but that's another story. (laughs) But yeah, so then eventually they opened Fridays as well, and um, so yeah, people were going there, and 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 I uh, didn't get a job as in a nightclub as a DJ until 1996 at the Roxy. But in rewinding. I was making, uh, I did harmonica track on Arthur Baker's label, Minimal. I did Equinox Code 718 for uh, Strictly. I did, I called myself the King Street Crew on Nervous Records. And um, those were like, you know, my deep house roots. But nothing was really happening from that as far as like, you know, it was, Tony Humphreys, Timmy Registered, yeah, these guys were playing it, but I wasn't seeing a penny in sales or anything like that. And where it took a turn was Tommy Musto introduced me to Peter Dow, amazing keyboard player, friend, and and Vanessa. And Peter did keyboards for me on uh, the Escape Club, call it Poison. And from there, we built a relationship. And then um, I hired him on a few remixes. Then uh, they asked me to remix their song "Surrender Yourself." Uh, it came out of Columbia Records. It was an alt, alt, alternative, rockish, jazz kind of vibe. And they asked me if I want to do like a dance remix. So they gave me full reins to just completely make a new production out of it with Vanessa even re, re, reciting the lyrics in a poetry kind of way and adding some snippets like do, 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 you know, getting fun with it. And we had an amazing time and I took their album cut, turned it into like a 13-minute, what do they call it, the, the ballroom mix? Because <laughs> it was giving you ballroom, like voguing style. I put steps from love is the message and uh, I put a salsa loop in there and it had an edge to it, but it was still my deep roots first. But this song started to get played by DJs around the world and right around that same time within my remix history, I got hired from Warner Brothers to remix world, the price of love by new order. and. I was uh, I, d- I did the the musical version where the chord structures follow, you know the changes, and then I did a version that I guess you could say was inspired by a harder element via DJ Pierre with his wild pitch sound soulful but it grabbed you in you know and the chords the stabbing feel that yeah donkey. yeah he definitely created something with the wild pitch sound oh, yeah totally. So I was absorbing that. And um, I know I said to you earlier, it came to me how I could have described this change. Mm. Um, so now this is uh, like probably 93, 94 into 95. Doing Surrender Yourself and Bottom Heavy and uh couple of others, I can't remember, started to get me noticed around the world. In 1993, I got an offer to go play in Italy, which I never traveled before to be a DJ. And things just really evolved from there. I toured with Kerry Chandler, Merck, Oscar G, Green Velvet when he was Kashmir, DaJay, I had remixed a You Got Me Up. Um, which is going on 30 years next year. And um, 10 City was with us. There were so many people. And then Kerry Sham and I went on to Rome and Naples. It started in Rimini. So here I am building more relationships. But it seemed like the New Order track that I remixed, they declined that mix but allowed me to use what I did. So I removed the vocal and I added, well, you just look over your shoulder from the movie and it became bottom heavy. And it was my version of wanting to go a wild pitch kind of way as opposed to soulful. And it worked. Now I'm getting charted. I'm getting phone calls, ministry of sound, Tokyo, and I'm realizing that doing stuff with more of an edge is what was getting more attention. Makes total so, sense. Makes total yeah, sense. Yeah, so you probably know I did a cover version of Look Ahead with Carol Sullivan.
1: 100% I loved it. Yeah. The Norman yeah. Connors remake. I know.
0: I know. Aquarian Dream. Yes. And that's a great example of a pre disco, you know, song, you know? Phoenix, the album. I got the style of a Phoenix. Oh, so <laughs> imagine That's dropping. That's what in I said
1: it. to you before, musical taste. You got it. So now you're getting calls to travel. Right. I know you got the to got the job with Jason McCarthy at Roxy. And it was another right. change for you. How the hell that, because, you know, I knew you as mm. soulful Danny. Next thing yeah. I know, Danny's playing circuit parties. And working, because when you work for Jason McCarthy, the promoter at Roxy at the time, people, he has a circuit crowd. And Danny will again give you the explanation of what I mean by circuit. He'll explain that. <laughs>
0: Take Your Shirts Off. That's that Lula song. (laughs) That's right.
1: Take Your Shirts Off. I Want to Be Your Man. And all those records were going on. That's a circuit party. And Danny won them over. And that was a big thing for him to get that. And congrats at that time. I remember telling you that. Congratulations then when you got that spot. Because Roxy was a gigantic dance floor. (sighs) Woof to carry that yes. every week. Model, and you had big responsibility every week.
0: That big Gary Stewart sound system, which I was like, yeah. like a model of Steve Dash's phase on, you know, they were all in that Richard Long field. <clears throat> um, so I guess you could say what when my first album came out, I believe it was ninety four or it was released in ninety five, Heart and Soul. And on there, was, it was, yeah, it was called Heart and Soul because we had me featuring Carol Sullivan, Scott White, Dana Volchek on the flute, Eddie Montilla. I did uh, yesterday and today. These songs I thought were going to be so revered by the deeper house DJs around the world, and they weren't. They weren't, um, I I just really thought, Whoever's playing, like, Little Lewis or Masters at Work, Roger Sanchez, they're going to love this. And uh, I got to say, the only person, rest his soul, that I think gave me the most support was Frankie Knuckles. You know? And um, and compliments, too, because you need that, you know? Like, and uh, in the early days, Joe Closell at Dance Tracks. He was really, really supporting my stuff. He was like, you better bring it to me on real after you finish it, because I would go there, play on cassette, you know, give them. and um, so, yeah, you need that validation when you're like, otherwise you're like, why am I doing this? But when I was remixing like Patricia Kaz, Rest in jamira Jamiroquai, Emergency on Planet Earth, it's like, these are things that you and I get, you know, And that era, but it wasn't doing anything for me. I once I got into the edgiest stuff, it's like okay, now maybe I can uh,
1: buy a car. He (laughs) found Jesus, everyone. He found Jesus. He's got the Jesus set no no, I wasn't making no money, you know. Like I know that. that. Tell people that that's so important. They think
0: we're we'll all living lar- living larger lives. It was not like that then. Back then. I, I literally did not have a car until about 1993. I didn't have a car. I had a car in Miami, cheap one, but when I moved back, I came back with nothing. So the remix the remix career, the budget would go all to The recording studio, Tommy Musto, Peter Dow, or whoever else was, you know, helping me because I wasn't getting big budgets, but it's promotion. And if we skip all the way ahead till today, if you want to be a DJ, you better make a record and get your name out there because that's your business card. And then, you, you know, it's not about passing out cassettes or eight tracks or demo mixes or giving out a key. You have to get your name out there, resident advisor. Oh, which agency are you with? All that kind of shit. So back then, I wasn't making any money. Uh, you know, I was getting by, but not not enough to, you know, say, oh, I'm going to buy a nice living room set or things like that. You know, I'm already in my 30s now and in. I ain't got much to show for my uh, self except extensive record collection. <laughs> We're still spending a fortune on records. Okay, so now I made the edge of your stuff. Started playing with an edge. Started discovering techno, if you will, in the early years of Drum Code, and you know when Adam Bayer. I can't even think so so many names Uh, i just want to say how how it came to me of uh why let me rephrase this how it made sense to me and for me how i evolved from being such a soulful dj such a mental paradise garage addict tony humphreys and all of that All of that, all of that stuff we talked about from Norman Connors to, you know, fantastic Johnny C. Techno, I think I started to gravitate towards it because it was nothing like disco. It was new and refreshing to me because I found ways to make it refreshing to me. So to explain that, it was like disco garage was mainly established with pianos and roads, strings, brass, flutes, you know, real oh. authentic instruments. And I was raised on that. I loved it. I love music theory, but I think I started to get bored with it. You know, it's like as a DJ, You know, I'll tell you, like, if I try to explain to you, like, playing classics and stuff, I don't know if I could ever, I don't even know if I even want to ever hear Relight My Fire again. As amazing and legendary and historical as that place holds its place on Earth, I could listen to the intro (laughs) before it gets fluffy, and I could listen to Lolita Holloway coming in at the end. But it, so many of them became corny as f, and uh, Doctor Love, and so on and so on. Do so you love what you're Frank
1: Sinatra and the Johnny Mathis and the Ethel Merman and the, all the big show crooners. It's just like everybody's doing a disco record now. Oh, that's even a different planet, you know. Just you know, talk death. about making trash. It's like everything in life. This is what happens.
0: No, I I would have been right there with the Disco Sucks, Burn the Records. Yeah, right. You'd have been like, Mm -hmm. enough is enough. Disco Lucy. Disco Duck.
1: Disco on crack, everybody. Love Boat. It just
0: became so corny. and um, What's that TV show with the The Daisy Duke Show, the Dukes of Hazard, the Dukes of Hazard, the, the Love Boat. What's that song? Uh, Keep your eye on the sparrow. Do you remember that one? Yeah, that was pretty disco. And who was that? Was uh, what's his name? Can't think. Yeah. I, remember. I know who you talking about. Uh. Uh, it, the actor up. the one eye, Peter Falk.
1: Yes. Oh, God. Oh, I'm frozen <laughs> on your screen. Columbo. Columbo is. Columbo. Keep your eyes Oh, my. That's right. Jesus Christ. That
0: became a disco song. Well, so, that's,
1: yeah, that's what happens when, when, when the major companies come in and bastardize, they see money and they just throw everything at it.
0: It's I'm frozen. gonna take a snapshot of the screen. I hate to interrupt you because yeah, I'm just on it, but I have to show you later what it looks like. <laughs>
1: it's terrible. Well, you have to, um, you got to click on and off the um, the camera again. I think you got you, you locked up. But I'm frozen by you too, and the PA yeah, frozen by me. Yeah. Oh, like ah. Uh, yes, yeah, okay. like I see you smile. It's like you're stuck in
0: At least I'm smiling.
1: You're Is in class. Cam and- Hey, you back. You're back, okay. <laughs> she's back, she's back. Hands, <laughs> so you get the chance to get the Roxy, and I remember your 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 stuff is elevated now. You got the right people looking at what you're doing. The music is matching you. Um, is it's also the music? It's like they say the stars are lining at that time. You're getting your your, your chance now to step out of being behind the scenes and becoming more of a front runner right around that time. you know, and then feel comes not too far down the road either. I know when you, you got the set, you got the residency there.
0: I mean, again, my first love will always be deep house and songs with roads and, you know, percussion, um, And I still play that. I'm not a techno-only DJ. If I have the amount of hours to do it, I'm always going to tell a story because I think a, a great part of my sets is very tribalism, even if it's through techno, which is what I meant by I find ways to make techno work for me. And that's number one, is by pitching it down. I play techno at an average 126 to 128. Okay, so you slow it down. Yeah, always did that. And that's where besides like let's say like the Winter Music Conference and those showcases that got me recognized. When I started to play around the world and get to know somebody's DJs and people that influenced me, we talked about this. They noticed that I would be playing tracks that they knew maybe it came out as 140 BPM, but I'm playing it at 126. So let's say somebody train spotted me said, so What is that track? And I'll say, Oh, it's a uh, Marco Corolla on uh, Drum Code. They're like, What? I have that. I'm like, Yeah, but I burned it at minus eight to a CD. Then I play it in the CD player and I go even slower, so it made it more. Added some funk to it, you know, like a funk and a and a Latin percussive. Because a lot of the techno tracks have these rhythms that you you find them when you slow them down. That there's a rhythm that's giving you percussion and tribal and salsa. So I I work. Um, now with tractor for several years and i'm i probably never go back to any other way of playing because of my studio skills which i never get to express anymore so i just do stuff live with loops and rhythms so i'll take techno tracks if they need a little you know extra i got sticks and cowbells and things that just make it complete for me and people get it because it's it's the sound that I guess I I can't say I hear it like if somebody made a record that inspired by me I wouldn't say oh that's a that's a Danny sound because I can't really put it together but I do understand it when guys like Sasha and Digweed who I love could say Danny weaves deep house tribal progressive, and techno I guess that all started with elements maybe earlier with bottom heavy but um, um, because I started to get to play with a lot of these guys too so either I'm opening for them or they're opening for me we hear what each other's doing and you know that's
1: again- like influ- yeah that's influential on each other you're changing their sound
0: and they're changing your sound but what you're hearing and music kept evolving too. And, you know, between the record pools, record stores, you would hear something. I mean, I think if, if Larry was at a record store and okay, he's doing, I'll be your pleasure. You know, remember that one, Esther Williams and uh, Gino Socio, try it out and all these things. But then what's white horse by laid back. Uh, yeah, that's a crazy record comes out of' Has so- nothing to do with as Esther Williams, but that's how about
1: E the- two E4 when he played e well, exactly. Yeah, that's totally that's right concert. <laughs> yeah, but I'm saying is yeah. when you talk about playing uh, you yeah. know that kind of record R and b dance record to that
0: right. So well, that's again, my upbringing from my aunt the piano, Sergio Mendez and <clears throat> all of that. It was, you know, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Cream, Beatles, and then the Philly Motown stuff. It really, I guess is, the was perfect. Me calling the album heart and soul. perfect name. But it was later that it developed, you know, more branded as a techno, as a DJ. I don't think I've, Really, many techno records yet. Right,
1: you're still on your way because you're almost about ready to get with tribal, which you're just about. And when everything closed. <laughs> and then you know, getting right to that point where you become <clears throat> a very big uh, artist on that
0: on those labels. Yeah, and again, the uh, working around the world, you know. I, I don't know if you know, but I, I have performed in 45 countries now and I've been back to the same one so many times and I've gotten to meet and play with so many of the greatest DJs that are out there now. I mean, and they influenced me again, whether I was on before them or after them, you get to hear these different DJs. I mean, you know, who really helped influence me a lot as well. It was Carl Cox. Because I think I met Carl right at the time that I was starting to play at Twilo, And maybe a little bit before that, but they asked me to play with him and Jim Masters at a basement club in London. And it was pure tech house, like not necessarily banging bonsai techno where it's like annoying and just, you know scratch your eyeballs out kind of music
1: might make you crazy because that's like when you go to germany and you hear that super fast music you're
0: like it's too much too much and it was just too much too fast too hard no soul but when i got together and played with carl cox and jim masters it was called sub bass because it was some it was a basement Man, I could tell you it was probably the hottest party I've ever played at. I don't know how I didn't faint. You know, when the sweat's just coming on the walls? Because it was a basement. And you know, England doesn't have air conditioning. No air. No air. It was so wild that how could it not influence and inspire me to see a crowd reacting that way to what? We were doing. And Carl was a champion with the I'm trying to think of some labels, maybe Bush Bush records back then. i uh, God. Not prepared.
1: Tech Everybody, house. Google Fox. it. Everyone Google it and send Danny what you know about Carl Cox's discography. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't yeah, worry, you'll be knowing there, later. Exactly. You'll get everything. But yeah, but he was doing his thing. I remember he was playing a lot of that Bush sound and those techno records.
0: Yeah, and I learned a lot from him. And I was already absorbing this. I was, you know, buying a lot of these records, but I wasn't really getting to play them yet, because, um, again, that didn't really start for me until Twilo, where I really started to take a lot of chances. And it was well-received by some, by a lot it wasn't, but then Fridays happened. At well, that,
1: that's what I was going to ask you. What were you up against when you stepped into Twilo, coming in with the Danny Teneglia's sound?
0: Okay. So this is weird about? how it's all mixed in, because you mentioned circuit parties and Roxy, and then- well, There was a lot going on at that time. It yeah,
1: was, a, it was a smorgasbord of craziness in New I York. Know. Sedate me, please. (laughs) Well, I'm trying to remember the times. I remember I was with Kenny Carpenter and we were talking about at that time saying Danny got the job with Jason. And then we knew Junior had he was playing Twilo. And we we, 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 were this is what we did. We talked to each other. Everybody was talking at that time. Well, Junior wasn't at Twilo yet. No, he
0: was at closed. He was at the factory. Right. Okay, so You know, there was a period in 1992 where Frankie Knuckles was a resident at Sound Factory. And I don't remember exactly for how long that lasted, but you know, Sounds of Blackness, The Pressure, Whistle Song, Starpoint, you know, he was playing all these amazing songs. And um, I think they also had DJs like Susan Morabito you know, and. I that's when uh, I don't remember what specific specifically got um, you mentioned his name at the Roxy Jason Uh, Jason. Jason. yeah so he invited me to play at the Roxy and I knew what to do you know because I'd done on the New York scene New York tribal sound hard house and you know little trancy if you will I just don't like the word because it Went on to become like EDM and it's like the disco Lucy thing. <laughs> it just got a little bit, but there were some really cool melodic energy songs that uh, worked for me in my sets that I think a lot of maybe New York DJs or circuit DJs maybe wouldn't play, you know? So it just had, you know, I had an edge to me besides knowing what to do in New York. Yeah, played, you know, some of the Madonna stuff to Unbreak My Hearts. And you know, you knew what you had to do. Again, you don't want to clear a floor. They're not facing me at the Roxy, <laughs> you know, I'm like just pumping their fist. So I had to keep them dancing. But, you know, it's those in-between tracks that you you get them with somehow. And then that makes them realize there's something different happening. There's a different DJ because, you know, other DJs might not play this. But it's, again, how I played it and the tempo that I played it at. Maybe I did an edit, you know, back in those Pro Tools days. Um, Jason hires me to play at Roxy then as a resident. Sound Factory closed, reopened as Twilo, because there was that period where Frankie was there and then Junior came back. I don't remember the years. I can't tell you exactly. You are right on you're right on point. Go ahead. You're right around the time earlier. It's
1: before you got to Roxy, but that's right. Because mm-hmm. Frankie had about a half a year death mix nights. Frankie then when Frankie went away, Satoshi played and Morales played. Right,
0: right, exactly. And
1: then Sound Factory Bar, they moved Frankie to the Friday nights there.
0: Yeah. You bring Junior back which Frankie had me open a couple of times for him right, or even fill in for him once. And um, okay, so now Sound Factory had closed officially. And I guess nobody really knew that Phil Smith and Steve Dash were up to this reopening of it as Twilo. When it did open, of course, it was an immediate success because it was still the Sound Factory. <laughs> With a different name, you know, polished. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's still that address on 27th Street. It's the after hours, had the corner market. People would leave Roxy at 4 a.m., walk to Twilo. Now Twilo calls me and asks me to play Thanksgiving after Frankie Knuckles, the after hours part. I was like, whoa, that's big. So I called Frankie because we were friends and I told him that they were calling me to ask me to play, and you know, basically asking for his blessings because I don't want to disrespect. He was like, of course, you know, he a bundle of love. And um, so I got I got to play with Frankie. He played till 6 a.m. and then I played six till whenever noon. And it was amazing, you know. Um, I played a more harder edge, more of a bottom heavy. You know, I guess I just took it to the next phase. Maybe knew exactly how to follow him because I loved what he was doing. His roots are my roots. But now I was already traveling the world, playing with Carl and all these different DJs at different parts of the world. And I, had already adapted, you know, an edge, moving away from the deeper, deeper house stuff. And it worked. I couldn't tell you exactly what I played, but it was No, no that's that's irrelevant. We don't we,
1: we just know there's certain events that happened that led you into those positions. It was just right. timing. It was let's yeah. luck. But you earned it. You worked for it. You changed gears, and people recognize, and those doors open. And good for you. God bless. I mean, I always said that. Yeah, Serving. you, you worked for it. You got it. You put your time in. Uh, you grafted heavy. You know, you long time dude. You've been working. It's all I've ever really done. It's like I can't even. What imagine. else can you do? What else are you going to do now? Fight. I can mow the lawn. <laughs> Go make pizza. Why don't you go make pizza for us now? I mean, like, you know, all kidding aside, what are you going to do? You you got to fight to get, you know, a chance.
0: Exactly. It's like the, the dream became the reality across the bridge to Manhattan. I became a, you know, a DJ in a big nightclub as opposed to like six, because that was a small bar with a dance floor. But Twilo Roxy was a real thing. And once I got to play, after Frankie, Phil Smith immediately asked me if I wanted to be a resident. So of course I was leaving the Roxy to become a resident at Twilo. So now I was doing after was at Twilo, And then they started opening Fridays and I started playing Fridays. Not every week, but sometimes consecutively, sometimes every other week. But I was also the resident on Saturdays. But now we're starting to do Fridays, which was more geared towards a straighter crowd, straighter crowd. Right? I mean, that before?
1: I totally know what he means. Was it wasn't at the circuit, right. crowd with the shirts off, the men. It's right. more mixed yeah. crowd with women, and you know, Bridget yeah. Donald-ish.
0: Ravish, You know, they were going this. So I remember playing often with Doc Martin, and he's great. And uh, Mike Bindra, who went on to start Made Productions in Electric Zoo, he used to be a bartender at Sound Factory Bar, mm-hmm. and then he, you know, came on board uh, Twilo <clears throat> after was being a bartender there. And um, I started suggesting people to him to, you know, bring into the states, and I remember having Daft Punk play before me, um, Basement Jacks, um, DJ Pierre, DJ Vibe. A lot of people, I still got the flyers. I saved a lot of those. And uh, really that's just when it became, okay, use the word global. Global Underground asked me to make a CD. I started you know, getting concept ideas for elements. And which all doesn't come out till two years after I started working at the tunnel. So it was those years, 95, ninety-five, six, seven, eight, nine, traveling the world, getting to know a lot of great people, working on stages with a lot of heavy hitters, and just I guess it just molded me into the DJ I am now, where. If I get to take you on a proper journey, it's going to be... And don't forget, you
1: you went to create Me Yourself down at Yuba Street in
0: Hudson. Right. I almost forgot that. And that was like my favorite That's reason. a big, big piece of the pie, too. That's it, like- is. Oh, sure. it is. That's probably a legacy for me because it was every Friday... For five years and four months. Every Friday, midnight till noon. <laughs> Piece of cake. That was a lot. And then I played the closing of the building, because of course now it's condominiums. And um, oh, I need some more water. Drink.
1: Isn't it incredible, everybody? I'm going to talk right now. I'm going to let
0: everybody... I (laughs) I love you, Lenny. It's like the DJ Pierre, right? sure.
1: Sorry everyone, I had no sound. I mute, you know, I mute myself so you don't get an echo from Danny coming through. Thank you everyone. Um my mic was off. I was saying 50, well almost 45 to 50 years of of history of history. I'm so glad he agreed to do this. I mean we we've we've We've, we've, we, look, we need 20 hours to really touch everything. It's impossible. But, um, he has touched on so many things. And thank God we're able to bring him down each piece of it because every part that he's touched is very important to the full picture of this dance music thing called house music. Danny's a huge fixture in it, even though he's known for playing techno. I wanted him to tell all of you, at the beginning, it all starts from the same spot, R&B disco, or what should we call it pre-disco, Philly International Sound, takes you from there, through it all. He even, you know, he went into kind of like New Wave, in a sense, and on, playing Saint Music at Sticks in Manhattan, getting a chance to go to Miami, His Winter Music Conference sets become legendary. I'll tell you, he didn't even mention this. There's been times when you went to those sets that he played in Miami. He talked in between. He would be talking in between, explaining about the songs. with a microphone. So, you know, this has been a very interesting interview. And, you know, it's incredible what he's, you know, he didn't even mention that. He had the microphone in his hand in those sets sometimes. Telling everybody, you know, hey, here's the deal. This is what I did. I played this here. I heard him do that. Yeah. You know that right? I'm talking about you when you oh your microphone. Those 12, 13 hours sets. You start talking to explain to people
0: what the record meant to you. Well, mainly, I guess... First of all, we're both Italian from New York. We're not shy, you know. (laughs) Um, When I worked at the Roller Disco, I had to be on the mic. I was introducing, you know, uh, what was upcoming, what was backwards skaters, couples only, speed skaters. You know, what, what you have to do. And... This started during the Winter Music Conference because I was getting such acclaim for what I was doing there, which um, even though Cheers, um, oh yeah, basically Lenny, I was like a host. You know, so if if Mantronics or Naomi or Teledane's gonna perform, somebody's gotta announce them, you know? So it always stemmed from me, You know, not just being a DJ without a microphone. I was hosting. And um, I also remember at the winter music conferences, especially when it got to the groove jet years, the way people would look at me, they were like, what is this? You know, you just feel it because you get, it's one, you know, it could be goosebumps songs. And you know they want to know, so I would just say, hey, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to John Chia TikTok, or you're listening to Deep Dish and of um, Abalos, Masters at Work, whoever it might have been. I like to get let them have the credit. You know, I didn't write the. I, I'm only
1: playing this. Nobody did did that on that level. You know, like really, you know, was telling a story through a night and ex, you know and told some credits and gave people their due rights,
0: you know? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like that at um, Twilo or Vinyl. Yeah, you say, you know, get a Doc Martin or, you know, next week, you know, especially when you're playing such long sets. I mean, you gotta realize how much time a person like me spends alone Preparing to be alone in the booth for 12 hours. You know? It's like, can I talk to somebody? <laughs> right. You don't want to talk when you're working, they like to conversation, socializing. It's not a social career.
1: How many hours does it take you to prepare for something like that? What's days? What what's involved
0: for you to do this? Lenny, I can't even explain to you how possessed. Become. I mean, back when I was still with the records, I would go through every record in my collection, just because. (laughs) If we were downstairs, I'd pan with the camera to show you um, what I'm talking about. Um, I would travel with portable turntables, listen to the records in my hotel rooms, do a lot of editing of songs to make them more appealing. Send them. Um, I yeah, it was either studio sessions, record shops, a lot of listening sessions. You got to listen. You got to learn the songs, and make a proper reason why you're going to play it. You know, you got to feel it first before you put it out the speakers. So it's a lot of studying. It's a lot of studying of. You know, the music, not only going to the shops and buying them, you got to know what you're playing. And so there's a lot of time put in. And then it became extra time because, you know, I had a studio and I started realizing how it can make that much more of an impact on a song um, if I didn't edit of it because it wouldn't hold itself on its own. So it was really all about um, extending the best parts of it or eliminating bridges, you know, when it gets that corny section. Oh, so we say the shit part of the
1: song, get it out of the way, so we get that good sections of the record.
0: Yeah, so yeah, and... Um, yeah, a lot of time, a lot of time put into preparing. We know that. We know that because I'm telling you, Danny, these people
1: spoke about your sets in biblical terms, brother. They spoke <laughs> about it in biblical terms. I'm serious. The highlight is Danny's 14 hour set. And I, I get it. I get it. That's why I was able to advertise yeah.
0: it like that. I think when, when, um, uh, you mentioned about when I went from like being a deep house guy with the soul boy and all that to an edge, you were scratching your heads kind of phrase. But uh, let me think for a second. That
1: wasn't to put you down. We were just no, 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 no. We're going because was, you knew how passionate you were about house music. I remember how mm-hmm. and the records you were making and the mixes. And it's like, what?
0: Yeah. I totally forgot what I was going to say about that part. Um, where it went from that to something else, but yeah, it's it's not a very social career anymore, you know. Without the shops, without being a billboard reporter, talking to the promoters, you know, meeting at the record pool, it's a it's a lonely career. Anybody would tell you that. You can't gonna lie to you and say, you know, you were saying earlier, people think you're loaded and you live the life. No, you know, I've done good for myself. I have a beautiful home, I have a beautiful car, I have beautiful furniture, I have an amazing manager, Guy Ramos, and, uh, but, you know, people know, people that are in the know, know that guys like myself on this level, Get by and do well, but it's nothing like the EDM DJs, you know, like those nothing like I have to work a, a whole year to what someone to make in one night. <laughs> it's,
1: it's you mean like Calvin, you about David Gett and Calvin Harris, and stuff
0: like those, CDL, all those types, Martin Garrix, and
1: because what happens is those records are pop records that they make, right? No, so I, they get, it. I totally get it, and I respect it too. It's like they're a pop act and almost.
0: It's like having Madonna in her prime. Right. But because people see my name, maybe because of the internet and the way we all have social media, everybody's all in the same city. (laughs) And uh, they see your name. They see it a lot. They see you've been around for all these years. They think you're making it like these guys. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's in the upper echelon. You're in the high-end, high-end. You, know. you yeah, have an SSL. I don't even have a console. <laughs> <laughs> there was good times in house music. I was able to really enjoy those times. Yeah. But I know what you mean. You know, I know what you mean. It's just, it's crazy. This is a crazy business. And then, you know, some of us know you're always one away from that big, Remix that all of a sudden changes everything, and like for example, like Todd Terry with everything but the girl,
0: yeah, yeah, millions
1: cool. of mixes, boom. You're the high Armand Van Hilde. remember those e- budgets? The budgets are crazy. They're throwing money at you because they want your no. they want your name, and even more so that there used to be your sound. They just want your name
0: attached. Yeah, for the algorithms now. This is crazy. The world we live in. You know, it's funny so, that just as I started feeling like I was getting into the nature of how my mixes should, should really sound, because I love everything I've done. But in 2002, wow, has it been that long? That's when I did Depeche Mode and Kings of Tomorrow. And I'm really proud of those two. But after that it was nothing. Yoko Ono, that's all I can remember. Did a couple of singles, just you know, novelty stuff. Bring the drums back, space dance. But um, that's it. All the labels closed, all the shops closed. The budgets went from a good amount. What budget? Zero. <laughs> air, breathe that in. Take that air in and breathe. Yeah. Like now, what? Now, what do you do? Right. And one of the last songs I did, I didn't even get in advance. See what I'm saying? Yeah, not even in advance. So... That's
1: All right, so here's my last question because you covered so much. Two questions. You with the flashlight back in the day. Yeah. Where does that come from? And where are you going after when you here? like, where's your plan of action from now forward? What's in your mind? Like, what are you going to you know, accomplish?
0: Okay. Well, <clears throat> the thing with the flashlights, I think, I remember exactly how it started, but it, it, it probably stems from, wait, can I just stop for a second and say, earlier we were talking about, did I finish on my realizing how I embrace that change? We were talking about, you know, how could I listen to Relight My Fire again in some of these songs? I was such an avid lover of music, but it was getting boring for me. And then I, my ears just started opening with techno. It's kind of like when we were kids and we were listening to all this disco and then Kraftwerk came out of nowhere. How could you deny I Feel Love" by Donna Summer? You know, so I embraced that change And then still three decades later, still a DJ, I needed something newer. I didn't like freestyle. I didn't like high energy. You know, I didn't like hip hop, rap music, reggae. I was attracted to the techno. And I picked this up before because I wanted to show you this. Is it in the camera? I work with two of these. And I can put up to 64 loops in each one. And they make all the difference because if I need a rhythm, I have tons saved. I need acapella, I have them set for the, for the remix deck. Even if, even if it's something simple, but you want to make that statement. So you're playing something that's techno, it's got their rhythm, but it ain't really going to go to a higher height. Yeah, I can do a snare roll with that, too. I know the other day I was playing something and I dropped the acapella. It's so deep and rich of uh, Express 2. It's going ACDC. And it's so powerful that knowing exactly the right level and how to pull back on the track you're playing, it made it like as if that was the track. Oh, it's a remix of ACDC? You know, so things like that, that help you elevate the track you're playing. So if it's techno, I'm very likely to be playing it a lot slower than its original tempo. And um, so I really do enjoy it. I love it. I love playing with guys like Chris Liebing. And yeah, I just wasn't sure if I left off on no you covered it now passion is still there yeah yeah no i get it
1: i you covered that for sure 100 percent. the
0: flame is still inside me to do it and i prepare sometimes now more than ever because i'm going through all the loops and all putting this the music into itunes then i make the playlist and i make the playlist and tractor then you make your loops and everything it's just a lot of homework are we up to the part where where is this going for me? I don't remember what your oh, question is. the flashlights, the lights, of
1: course, because some people asking me a couple of questions. I want to make sure. You cover a lot of people's questions as you were explaining stuff. That's why okay. I didn't stop you. People be writing on the chat. I totally forgot. No, and I won't stop you because unless it's something that's completely separate. You're answering. They're going, what happened to your production with this? And you answered it. So I wasn't going to stop you. I'm listening. I'm moderating. I'm going live, yo. This, <laughs> this, he's rocking it, people. Oh my God. You're doing a great job, Danny. I mean, you, we're, we're jogging your memory heavy today to get this all this stuff out of you. Okay. The lights, the flat. Somebody asked me, what Flash. about Danny? Right. What about Danny and his famous flashlights?
0: all right i guess every dj inside of them is part light man too because you know the song so well you know when that strobe should hit or that floodlight should sweep or go up in the air and i guess i've done lights in my days you know i've done lights for djs because you know might have been your night off but you're there and the light man like let me do the lights and you're having fun doing the lights well that that for me comes from also being a frustrated musician. So I know changes. I know parts. I know when things are about to happen. And that's what I think started to happen. I don't know how I stumbled upon the flashlights, but I know that I was able to accent and highlight some of the songs almost you know, like a crescendo kind of way. So instead of, you know, hitting on the remix deck of snare roll you know I might just come up with flashlights and it was uh, it was making sense if the rooms were dark a lot of places it didn't have the right effect but at Twilo Tunnel Groovejet Stereo, Montreal my favorite club in the world to play at Um, some places it just had the right effect And um, those things were heavy, (laughs) because that was before LED. Those batteries were like, I think I have a tendinitis.
1: tunnel (laughs) tendonitis.
0: Plantar fasciitis. (laughs) So, yeah, I had fun with that. But But
1: that effect was used for people. They talk about that too, like, "Oh my God, Danny has
0: flashlights! Wait, shine the light on me!" I played a club, Twenty Three Meadow in Brooklyn the other night with Beirut's, and uh, it reminded me of vinyl. And I think it's the kind of room where the flashlights would have made sense because you got know, to go around like helicopter lights or searchlights, you know, and you're, you're making an effect because you know what you're gonna, what that song's gonna do. And, you know, it's not meant to, like, point at people's faces and blind them and kick them out of the club. <laughs> um, okay, I'll bring him back. Bring him back, Danny.
1: Last, from here forward, what is your projection? What do you think is going to, where are you headed?
0: From here to eternity... That's the Giorgio song behind me.
1: From here to eternity. Oh, that's what you want to be.
0: Oh. Can you believe I got to meet Giorgio Moroda a few times now? Like I met him at the, like on the panels discussion, like afterwards you wait to say hello and meet somebody. I think it was the Billboard Music Summit. I couldn't wait to meet him. I was probably trembling. And then I got to do the rework of From Here to Eternity. Oh, I remember that too, that remix when you did that. But yeah. Kick needs to be harder. Um, then I got to meet him when he played it. Output as a DJ. And you know what he said to me? I can't believe that Georgia Moroder knows me. And he says to me, Danny, is, is it true I hear you're retiring? I said, oh my God, Georgia Moroda's hearing this. Is asking the question, no less. And you're like, what? I said, no, it got all lost in translation. I never meant retiring. I meant that I wanted to resign from my company and start over. But it just got lost in translation, and he goes, "Oh, thank God, because we need you." You know, and I'm like this is Giorgio Morota telling me, "Good, because you can't retire," kind of words. You know, and this is in like the side room output before he went on. I'll never forget that. It's moments like that that mean more to me than a Grammy nomination because. I I appreciated that and that was a great way to show my family what it real what this career really meant to me of being a DJ for you know 40 something years well now it is but yeah it was helpful for them to see that but I don't feel like a person in the music business I don't own a record label and you know so I didn't write I feel loved I didn't produce the Mode. I did a dance remix. Came out good. And, you know, but that moment with Giorgio Moroder, or so many moments at the end of a night at a nightclub, means so much more to me than a Grammy win. Because I'm a DJ first. I'm not a music producer first. I'm not star of Hollywood type of guy.
1: No, that's for sure, everybody. You know, Danny, he's very behind the scenes. Everybody (laughs) away from him when he's working. You know that.
0: We know that about you. Oh, can I tell you a story, Lenny, about why I hated people behind me? (laughs) Share it, Danny. (laughs) Yeah, because, you know, I know the rumors. I know the stories, you know. You're going to hear from me. I am so obsessed and possessed when I'm working, when I'm in a DJ booth, it, to me, is this equivalent of a singer singing on stage and somebody going up to him doing this. And they're performing with a violin or whatever it might be. But back in the days when you had to turn around to get your record or you had to turn around from the mix set to go through your CD books, A lot of times there will be people there and it would be a major distraction for me. I would have to obviously say hello, not be rude. And it could be all kinds of people, industry people, club people, promoters, other DJs. And you you get stuck. Then you're like, turn around, you go back to what record was I about to play or what you may have wanted to do. You forgot what it was, or it's too late to do it now because I passed that point in the record. And then it started to become, my name started getting more and more recognized. Then people start wanting the photos. And now you have to stop to take photos with people. And it's like, I didn't sign up for this. I just want to be there. Just put me back in a mezzanine. you know. <laughs> but uh, yeah.
1: I mean I can understand I can understand that because it's hard to be working through a night and stop your train of thought and have to like play bar I call it like playing bartender. <laughs> you know, like you you're actually working, but you're like, wait, hold on, I gotta mix. Just wait a second. Yeah. You know? And they don't understand. Or That's they're coming up to you at the wrong moment when you're in the middle of fucking doing You know, I know. I'm like, I've been boot patrol for other people. Like,
0: stop, let them do his thing. Wait, you know, you're meant to come across as like some diva attitude person. It just, what I I really realized how much I appreciate Tractor now because I don't have to turn around anymore. I can just stay focused into my screen, my remix decks. And yeah, I'll say hello to people sometimes, but sometimes I was on really, really big platforms, you know, where there's just industry behind you. And, you know. Danny!
1: Danny! You're like, get him out of here.
0: different yeah. languages.
1: Get him all in my booth, out of my booth. There. Danny! Grande! Danny! No. Danny! 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 Please! Danny, I love you! Man,
0: man I'm Lenny, I witnessed some stuff around the world.
1: So do we all. In I can goodness. imagine what you witnessed. You could write a book just on The Witness. Forget about everything else. The Witness Program. God bless you, Danny Teneglia. And I'm going to make you ask the, the last question and then I'm all going to say goodnight to you because you are a you're, impo- you're, you're, you're a DJ icon, so I'm going to say it. You're <sighs> our, our hero, bro. Okay. <laughs> you're our hero. So where does Danny leave me now and goes for the next 10, 15 years, what are you projecting is going to be your life now? When we're back out of COVID, of course, and we're right. back to full par, back to full power again.
0: I guess this period with COVID um, really helped, I want to say helped, made a lot of us stop and think where's this all going for me? Where's what's next? Um, I turned 60 in March. And I spent the day by myself. It was all streaming. You know? Ain't that something? Um, I moved to New Jersey. I live in a private area. Um, I can't see another house from here. There's no street lights, There's no sidewalks. I live in a forest, basically. And all this change with COVID-60, this area Moving into a new home, it really made me think, well, I said earlier, I don't even know what else to do. I don't know what else I could do as far as a career. I can't stop because I need to continue making a living. If I want to afford living here and you know keep my life going as it is, I cannot stop working. So with that, I, I I wish I had was able to move the camera around so I could. Uh, it looks like I'm in Judge Judy's chambers. No, so. no, no! You
1: look fine. You look fine. We, this is about. We need the story. I'm afraid if you move it, we're gonna lose this. Do not yeah. touch it. We'll have to move back to Send them private messages. Don't touch
0: the computer till we're finished. <laughs> <Tell them. laughs> anyway, so um, I've committed myself to sitting in a room like you're sitting right now. I want to have a proper studio, but I'm going to keep it minimal. You know, I have all the synths, all the drum machines, but I just want to keep it minimal and really, really learn how to master Ableton by myself, not have to depend on an engineer because uh, scheduling and who lives in this city, that city is kind of impossible. And I'm hungry to do this every day. But you know, it's hard to find the right people to work with. So I've uh, committed, I bought a mini iMac mini. Loaded it up and reinstalling Logic and Ableton because most of my sessions were with Logic. But Ableton is the way to go for warping tracks. If you're DJing and it is what everybody's using to make tracks these days. A lot of people are just putting Logic and Pro Tools on the back burner. and Everybody tells me, and you'll, you'll enjoy it. It's much easier to learn and utilize. So here I am surrounded by these trees and the nature, and that's all I see myself doing is continuing with the music. Cause it's my heart, it's my soul, it's my life. I don't know what else I would possibly do. So is that
1: going to force you to, are you going to make a Teneglia label to release the stuff on? Because we're at that stage now where if you're going to make all this music, does somebody understand how to work with it properly? No way to put it, or are you going to still work the same business model that you've always done, where you hand it to a record label and then on to your next project?
0: Well, it it's a lot of everything because of being a DJ and a producer. It really is two careers, you know, because which, which one of these careers is going to need my time? Both of them. So it's two careers. I, um, of course, you mentioned COVID. It put a stop on a lot of things, but... Um, I need to find people to work with also in regard to the label. Most people that have really gone on to become successful with their brandings, whether it's um, Guy Gerber, Marco Corolla, Jamie Jones, Damien Lazarus, these people have labels. So they have a brand. I don't have a label. People know I have a be yourself themed party because of the song I co-wrote. Um but there's no be yourself records so it's not like I can go bring a party. So maybe that is on the horizon that I start a record label and start bringing that branding so I can earn a better living. Um but that's down the road because I think I have to have a catalog of tracks and I funny thing is when we're talking about deep house and <clears throat> techno in my within my career i have so many deep house tracks s- sitting in my computer and my logic program that i've started over the years and even recently still when i have sessions with some of my keyboard f- player friends mainly eddie montia and he's in miami um but they're just sitting on there. But I think if I put those out, it's not going to get me the global attention as if I made techno type tracks. So it's, it's still, it's, it's difficult. But I need to find people to work with to make these tracks come to life, whether they're house, deep house or techno. But that's the only place I could see my life going from here. Hey, with a face and a voice like this, I could always drive a cab.
1: Listen, you can't go wrong. Uh, Your name is synonymous in the industry. If you if you were to do the techno route and you make that, say, be yourself, and you do a deep underground label as well, I could see it working. Because people already know, you know, the brand of Danny Tenegli is well-known and well-liked. You know that. It's yeah. just a matter of feeding the machine.
0: and And, you know, you need... You need to work with new up and coming people too that can help you express yourself because limited. There's only so many hours in a day. So maybe you know, meeting someone that could listen to my deeper stuff, maybe I'll make like a little B room downstairs or something and let them go work on it. But you know, I need to find people that understand music, you know, know when you hear that synth and you hear that string or whatever other instrument might be. If you can't tell that they're fighting each other and those notes don't work together, then
1: you can't be doing this.
0: Yeah, you can't work in that.
1: And Sometimes we, wrong is right. Sometimes wrong is right. But, especially in techno, we've all been spoiled by some of the best guys in New York and some of the great keyboard and
0: musicians we've been around. Well, the, the people we learned from and yeah. the, about the Motown Philly, you know, these were real orchestras and jazz classical players. That's how they learned from Mozart and Bach, you know, Miles Davis, whoever. So, yeah, I'm fussy. And, you know,
1: I know you are. That's why music. you don't release a lot of stuff, and you're very careful. I'm not stupid. We all know that. We all know that you take a lot of pride in what you do,
0: you know. Yeah. And you want to get it right. I would love to revisit my catalog and um, of the remixes and stuff, and make them more sounding punchier today, like today's, you know, digital sounding stuff. Um, they've come to such higher heights, with the way some of these records sound today, and you listen to the '90s records, and you're like, eh. You know, yeah, it was a 909, nine, but it doesn't have that, that kick wasn't loud enough. So I would love to revisit those and just just get them out to people, you know, just just oh, do it. Yeah, you could do that. People don't know the songs I've remixed, so I don't want to just put them out there without revisiting them first and enhancing them sonically. They won't know that's from nineteen Danny in
1: 1993 or Danny 96 or Danny 91. They won't know that. Right. I know it sucks. This is the way things are today. They don't realize that that was a time and era when things were all analog too. It was a different world back then. All that's different than now. Yeah. How we made records back then. Are,
0: so, are people still in the chat sending in their resumes?
1: <laughs> yeah, I was actually going to say, you know, make sure you send resumes to Danny, too. He's looking for great programmers, programmers. Fabulous, and great musicians. He's hungry. That
0: know how to master
1: Ableton. Uh, that and are masterful, A&R, uh, not A&R, masterful Ableton users. Tony Rivera says, me. Uh, I'm on it. They're all writing to me right now. Yeah, but they're probably like in Boston. You know? you got to I mean, be in the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. You
0: need to have a car. <laughs> you need to have... Uh, you need to know North New Jersey, not take three hours to get here. Funny. You know, Danny, you got to come out here sometime. I have... I, uh, I have the... Uh, District thirty-six and vinyl sound system mixed together because the district's system is fourteen feet high. I couldn't fit that, but I have the four stacks up in my basement. Really, you took—I didn't know that. When I didn't know you grabbed that too. Yeah, I have the the prototype of a Gary Stewart system at the District thirty-six. I remember that system. Yeah, and Pioneer bought the rights to it. Right. So I have that system. I, I didn't uh, get to buy the amps, but I do have all the crossovers and all the toys. I didn't get the CD plays, DJ turntables or mixers, but I got the speaker boxes, the horns. I bought new speakers to put inside the boxes, um, transparent from Canada, and I got all the all the crossovers.
1: Wow. Party time. Right after this goes away. I'll be there. Yeah. I will definitely come
0: out. I would love to come see a spot. The thing is going to be a safari. Because out back here. And remember, I'm a little kid from Brooklyn. I know cockroaches and mice. You know, I lived above a pork store. Don't forget that.
1: (laughs) He's He's urbanized.
0: 533 Metropolitan Avenue.
1: He's urbanized. Where all those clubs are, he lived back as a kid now it's all clubs it's all the clubs in New York are in that area now
0: my dad rest his soul would have been 80, 92 and he was born on North 7th Street in Williamsburg my mom was born in the apartment I was raised in and it's crazy how it's changed but I was going to say <clears throat> living here on the edge of a forest there's probably like just 8 miles of forest right behind my house I've seen from lizards, turtles to um groundhogs. I've seen rabbits, I've seen foxes, raccoons, black bears, and now garden snake and a rattlesnake. A rattlesnake in the rocks over there. Oh
1: my god.
0: So I'm not leaving the house.
1: <laughs> Sorry Danny, keep
0: making music. We love you. Danny, thank you so much. And thank everybody for watching. You just are amazing. I could talk to you forever. You are the bomb. Let's stay in touch. Oh, we will. I I Oh my God. You got my number
1: now. You have mine too. And right. uh finally I got your your number. It's a it's a good one. It's a 212 number, everybody. <laughs> Make sure you, you hit up Daddy 212 555 1212 for information on how to become His his position (laughs) programmer. But all kidding aside, if you guys are in the area and you're hot, Danny's looking for new talent that understands Ableton. Reach out to him. He wants to know, you know, because like all of us, we're looking for that next best thing. And you may just be that person. And I want to say, this has been a wonderful Sunday. One of the greatest masters, iconically, I know, and most humblest I know, Danny Teneglia.
0: You and I want to congratulate you on this show. I didn't mention earlier that I watched your interview with Lee John, and I didn't know you knew him. Oh, I know him so well, Sleezer John. Oh, my God. Lee John is incredible. I love him. I couldn't believe I this guy. I was like, I want to know him. And then I went on to see another YouTube of him singing, like sitting in a chair. He's so on point. I was like, oh, my God, he still does it. Like, it, it was so like sounds like imagination, right? I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I was so grateful that I watched that particular one, and then got to continue. It was like you just—I had no idea where Lee John's been all these years. You know, so thank you for doing what you do, Carl Cox. All the people you interview—I still got a whole bunch I need to watch. I
1: didn't oh. know. You. Danny did it for posterity. It was a lot of work to get him on, but it was so worth it on a Sunday. Let's do part two. God, we have to pick up from 1996 to now. We will do part two. But we are going to go. I haven't announced yet, but we are going to Real Network soon. When I do, I may come back and say, Danny, we're really doing this for real. Like, you know, with the camera crew. Come here, man. we We want you with me. Like Diane, I'll be Diane Sawyer. I <laughs> <laughs> you want to be I'm like Diane Sawyer. I want to be that person, I'm Barbara Walters. I want to. <laughs> I want. I want to be able to get those extract what we need. And listen, Danny, you give everybody a ton of inspiration. You know, number one, you no, know, think about it. The age you're at, okay, still passionate about it. Because our generations, the family members we knew or people we knew by by mid fifties, they were we talking about it was over retirement. You know, mm-hmm. that's you know what I'm talking about. They they're mm-hmm. saying forget. We're still playing to 21, 22, 25 year olds. It's incredible yeah. to even be in that whole mindset that you're still able to do that, be
0: loved for what you do, and revered. It's a it's a spiritual thing. It is. It- I love it, and again, thank you. And let's do part two. Bring coming. Wait,
1: wait, hang on. We couldn't even get Danny on part one. Now he wants to part two. Oh my God, I'm so I'm so humbled.
0: God we us do a show. You could be Howard Stern, and I'll be the chick that just yeah. laughs at everything he says. Yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> and open the newspaper every
1: time and say, "Tell me what's going on," but. Danny, again, you got so much information. God bless, brother. We love you. Thank I'm you. serious. And I mean Very that. I'm not saying it. You know, it's a lot of work to get everyone together. And thank God we've been able to still be here to tell the story. And yo, peace. Love you. God. Give us everybody. I want to say to one this. thing. Before I let him go, just look at this, everybody. You wonder where the sound we talk about in New York, right? He's gonna get a kick out of this. Wednesday coming up, I got Dave Darlington. Oh, wow. From bass hit. Dave Darlington, the sound engineer behind all those big records.
0: I I used to rent the uh, MAW studios a lot. Bass yeah. hit, it was called. Yeah, and he, I knew he was going to say it. Dave Darlington. That guy is so humble, cool, down to hurt, gentle. Yeah, I'm definitely going to watch it. Give him my best. I, I will,
1: and, I, I, and of course, Danny, be careful with the raccoons, the squirrels, the bears, the rattlesnakes, the turtles, the tigers, everything we got going out there in North Jersey, please be careful because and, and, we need you your next gig. Okay?
0: <laughs> I want to hang up, maybe I'll go see if there's a bear
1: up there. I need All gig. right, tell to everybody, tell everybody <laughs> Danny, good night, and then you stay with me because I want to thank you. Good night, everyone around the world. Thank you again for tuning in to True House Stories. I am Lenny Fontana. Right next to me is Danny Tenegli. we we'll say thank you. God bless. Take care.